We now continue with the glories of Mary. All the angels then came to salute her, and she, the great queen, thanked all for the assistance they had given her on earth, and more especially she thanked the archangel Gabriel, who was the happy ambassador, the bearer of all her glories, when he came to announce to her that she was the chosen mother of God. The humble and holy virgin, then kneeling, adored the divine majesty, and all absorbed in the consciousness of her own nothingness, thanked him for all the graces bestowed upon her by his pure goodness, and especially for having made her the mother of the eternal word. And then let him who can comprehend with what love the most holy trinity blessed her. Let him comprehend the welcome given to his daughter by the eternal father, to his mother by the son, to his spouse by the Holy Ghost. The father crowned her by imparting his power to her, the son his wisdom, the Holy Ghost his love. And the three divine persons placing her throne at the right of that of Jesus, declared her sovereign of heaven and earth, and commanded the angels and all creatures to acknowledge her as their queen, and as such to serve and obey her. Part 2 Let us now consider how exalted was the throne to which Mary was raised in heaven. If the mind of man, says St. Bernard, can never comprehend the immense glory prepared in heaven by God for those who on earth have loved him, as the Apostle tells us, who can ever comprehend the glory that he has prepared for his beloved mother, who, more than all men, loved him on earth, nay, even from the very first moment of her creation, loved him more than all men in angels united? Rightly, then, does the Church sing that Mary, having loved God more than all the angels, the Mother of God has been exalted above them all in the heavenly kingdom. Yes, she was exalted, says the abbot Guerrick, above the angels, so that she sees none above her but her Son, who is the only begotten of the Father. Hence it is that the learned Gerson asserts that, as all the orders of angels and saints are divided into three hierarchies, according to the angelic doctor in St. Denis, so does Mary of herself constitute a hierarchy apart, the sublimest of all, and next to that of God. And as, adds St. Antoninus, the mistress is, without comparison, above her servants, so is Mary, who is the sovereign lady of the angels, exalted incomparably above the angelic hierarchies. To understand this, we need only know what David said, The Queen stood on thy right hand. And in a sermon by an ancient author among the works of St. Athanasius, these words are explained as meaning that Mary is placed at the right hand of God. It is certain, as St. Ildefonsus says, that Mary's good works incomparably surpassed in merit those of all the saints, and therefore her reward must have surpassed theirs in the same proportion. For as that which she bore was incomprehensible, so is the reward which she merited and received incomprehensibly greater than that of all the saints. And since it is certain that God rewards according to merit, as the Apostle writes, 
who will render to every man according to his works, it is also certain, as St. Thomas teaches, that the Blessed Virgin, who was equal to and even superior in merit to all men and angels, was exalted above all the celestial orders. In fine, adds St. Bernard, let us measure the singular grace that she acquired on earth, and then we may measure the singular glory which she obtained in heaven. For according to the measure of her grace on earth is the measure of her glory in the kingdom of the blessed. A learned author, Father La Colombière, remarks that the glory of Mary, which is a full, a complete glory, differs in that from the glory of other saints in heaven. It is true that in heaven all the blessed enjoy perfect peace and full contentment. Yet it will always be true that no one of them enjoys as great glory as he could have merited had he loved and served God with greater fidelity. Hence, though the saints in heaven desire nothing more than they possess, yet in fact there is something that they could desire. It is also true that the sins which they have committed and the time which they have lost do not bring suffering. Still, it cannot be denied that a greater amount of good done in life, innocence preserved, and time well employed give the greatest happiness. Mary and desires nothing in heaven and has nothing to desire. Who amongst the saints in heaven except Mary, says St. Augustine, if asked whether he has committed sins, could say no? It is certain as the Holy Council of Trent has defined, that Mary never committed any sin of the slightest imperfection. She not only never lost divine grace, and never even obscured it, but she never kept it idle. She never performed an action which was not meritorious. She never pronounced a word, never had a thought, never drew a breath that was not directed to the greater glory of God. In fine, she never cooled in her ardor or stopped a single moment on her onward course towards God. She never lost anything by negligence, but always corresponded to grace with her whole strength and loved God as much as she could love Him. O Lord, she now says to Him in heaven, if I loved Thee not as much as Thou didst deserve, at least I loved Thee as much as I could. In each of the saints there were different graces. As St. Paul says, there are diversities of graces, so that each of them, by corresponding to the grace that he had received, excelled in some particular virtue, the one in saving souls, the other in leading a penitential life, one in enduring torments, another in a life of prayer. And this is the reason for which the Holy Church, in celebrating their festivals, says of each, there was not found one like him. And as in their merits they differ, so do they differ in celestial glory. For star differeth from star. Apostles differ from martyrs, confessors from virgins, the innocent from penitents. The Blessed Virgin, being full of all graces, excelled each saint in every particular virtue. She was the apostle of the apostles, she was the queen of martyrs, for she suffered more than all of them. She was the standard-bearer of virgins, the model of married people. 
she united in herself perfect innocence and perfect mortification. In fine, she united in her heart all the most heroic virtues that any saint ever practiced. Hence of her it was said that the queen stood on thy right hand in gilded clothing, surrounded with verity. For the graces, privileges, and merits of the other saints were all united in Mary, as the abbot of Celis says. The prerogatives of all the saints, O Virgin, thou hast united in thyself. She possessed them in such a degree that as the splendor of the sun exceeds that of all the stars united, so, says St. Basil of Seleucia, does Mary's glory exceed that of all the blessed. St. Peter Damien adds that as the light of the moon and stars is so entirely eclipsed in the appearance of the sun that it is as if it was not, so also does Mary's glory so far exceed the splendor of all men and angels that so to say, they do not appear in heaven. Hence St. Bernardine of Siena asserts with St. Bernard that, that the blessed participate in part in the divine glory, but that the blessed virgin has been in a certain way so greatly enriched with it that it would seem that no creature could be more closely united with God than Mary is. She has penetrated into the bottom of the deep, and seems immersed as deeply as it is possible for a creature in that inaccessible light. Blessed Albert the Great confirms this, saying that our Queen contemplates the majesty of God in incomparably closer proximity than all other creatures. The above-named St. Bernardine, moreover, says that as the other planets are illumined by the sun, so do all the blessed receive light and an increase of happiness from the sight of Mary. And in another place he also asserts that when the glorious Virgin Mother of God ascended to heaven, she augmented the joy of all its inhabitants. For the same reason, St. Peter Damien says that the greatest glory of the blessed in heaven is, after seeing God, the presence of this most beautiful queen. And St. Bonaventure that, after God, our greatest glory and our greatest joy is Mary. Let us then rejoice with Mary that God has exalted her to so high a throne in heaven. Let us also rejoice on our own account, for though our mother is no longer present with us on earth, having ascended in glory to heaven, yet in affection she is always with us. Nay, even being there nearer to God, she better knows our miseries and her pity for us is greater, while she is better able to help us. It is possible, O blessed Virgin, says St. Peter Damien, because thou art so greatly exalted, thou hast forgotten us in our miseries? Ah, no, God forbid that we should have such a thought. So compassionate a heart cannot but pity our so great miseries. If Mary's compassion for the miserable, says St. Bonaventure, was great when she lived upon earth, it is far greater now that she reigns in heaven. Let us, in the meantime, dedicate ourselves to the service of this queen, to honor and love her as much as we can. For as Richard of St. Lawrence remarks, she is not like other rulers who oppress their vassals with burdens and taxes, but she enriches her servants with graces, merits, and rewards. 
Let us also entreat her in the words of the abbot Guerrick. O Mother of Mercy, Thou who sittest on so lofty a throne, and in such close proximity to God, satiate Thyself with the glory of Thy Jesus, and send us, Thy servants, the fragments that are left. Thou dost now enjoy the heavenly banquet of Thy Lord, and we, who are still on earth as dogs under Thy table, ask Thy mercy. Example St. Peter Damien relates the following of his brother Marinus. The latter, having had the misfortune to sin against the holy virtue, went shortly after before an altar of the Blessed Virgin and consecrated himself to her service. As a sign of this oblation, he put a girdle around his neck and addressed the Blessed Virgin in these words, Dear Lady, Thou mirror of purity, I, poor sinner, have offended God and thee. I know no other remedy but to enter thy holy service. I therefore offer myself to thee today. Deign to take a poor rebel and do not reject me. At the foot of that altar he left a sum of money and promised that every year he would offer an equal amount as a mark of his servitude. When after a long and God-fearing life he came to die, he said shortly before expiring, Arise, arise, and render homage to our loving Virgin Mother. What a favor for me, O Queen of Heaven, that thou shouldst deign to visit thy poor servant. Bless me, my lady, and do not let me be lost after being honored in thy presence. Shortly after his brother Damien entered, and the dying man told him of the apparition, adding that Mary had blessed him. At the same time he complained because those present had not arisen when Mary appeared to him. In a few minutes he closed his eyes in death. Prayer O great, exalted, and most glorious Lady, prostrate at the foot of thy throne, we adore thee from this valley of tears. We rejoice at thy immense glory with which our Lord has enriched thee. And now that thou art enthroned as Queen of heaven and earth, Ah, forget us not, thy poor servants. Disdain not, from the high throne on which thou reignest, to cast thine eyes of mercy on us miserable creatures. The nearer thou art to the source of graces, in the greater abundance canst thou procure those graces for us. In heaven thou seest more plainly our miseries. Hence thou must compassionate and succor us the more. Make us thy faithful servants on earth, that thus we may one day bless thee in heaven. On this day, on which thou wast made queen of the universe, we also consecrate ourselves to thy service. In the midst of thy so great joy, console us also by accepting us as thy servants. Thou art then our mother. Ah, most sweet mother, most amiable mother, Thine altars are surrounded by many people. Some ask to be cured of a disorder, some to be relieved in their necessities, some for an abundant harvest, and some for success in litigation. We ask thee for graces more pleasing to thy heart. Obtain for us that we may be humble, detached from the world, resigned to the divine will. Obtain us the holy fear of God, a good death and paradise. O Lady, change us from sinners into saints. 
work this miracle, which will redound more to thy honor than if thou didst restore sight to a thousand blind persons, or didst raise a thousand from the dead. Thou art so powerful with God, we need only say that thou art his mother, his beloved one, his most dear one, filled with his grace. What can he ever deny thee? O oh, most beautiful queen, we have no pretensions to see thee on earth, but we do desire to go to see thee in paradise, and it is thou who must obtain us this grace. For it we hope with confidence. Amen, amen. Hymns The Death of Mary Uplift the voice and sing, the daughter and the spouse, the mother of the king to whom creation bows. Praise to Mary, endless praise. Raise your joyful voices, raise. Praise to God who reigns above, who has made her for his love. When Mary lingered yet in exile from her son, like fairest lily set mid thorns of earth alone. Praise to Mary, endless praise. Raise your joyful voices, raise. Praise to God who reigns above, who has made her for his love. To be with God on high, her heart was all on fire. She sought and asked to die with humble, sweet desire. Praise to Mary, endless praise. Raise your joyful voices, raise. Praise to God who reigns above, who has made her for his love. At length her heavenly spouse, who loved her with such love, invites her to repose with him in heaven above. Praise to Mary, endless praise. Raise your joyful voices, raise. Praise to God who reigns above, who has made her for his love. She waits till death appear, and let her spirit go. But death approached with year, and dared not strike the blow. Praise to Mary, endless praise. Raise your joyful voices, raise. Praise to God who reigns above, who has made her for his love. Then came sweet love from heaven, and with his flaming dart the mortal wound was given. To Mary's stainless heart. Praise to Mary, endless praise, raise your joyful voices, raise. Praise to God who reigns above, who has made her for his love. Pierced by the deadly wound, she gently bowed her head. Pining with love, she swooned, and lo, her spirit fled. Praise to Mary, endless praise, raise your joyful voices, raise. Praise to God who reigns above, who has made her for his love. Then did that beauteous dove spring joyfully on high. Her son receives with love and bears her to the sky. Praise to Mary, endless praise. Raise your joyful voices, raise. Praise to God who reigns above, who has made her for his love. And now, bright queen of love, while seated on thy throne, high in the realms above, near to thy glorious son, Praise to Mary, endless praise. Raise your joyful voices, raise. Praise to God who reigns above, who has made her for his love. Here, from that blessed abode, a sinner cries to thee, Teach me to love that God who bears such love to me. Praise to Mary, endless praise. Raise your joyful voices, raise. Praise to God who reigns above, who has made her for his love. The second hymn on the death of Mary. Mary, thy heart for love alone had ever sighed. 
So much it loved, at length of very love it died. O oh, happy, happy death, if death indeed could be, Blessed virgin, that sweet end which God bestowed on thee. Tis in a sweet repose, with smile of heavenly mirth, Thou takest joyful flight to paradise from earth. Then speed thee, mother mine, though speeds my life from me, Haste where thy son awaits, and heaven welcomes thee. O oh, that my life could end, sweet mother, now with thine, That I might soar to heaven, where all thy glories shine. Thrice fortunate, my soul, yea, lot supremely blessed, To reach thy mother's throne, and at her feet to rest. But see above the choirs of saints and angels bright, God's mother near her son, enthroned in dazzling light. Come then to fetch thy child, O Mary, mother dear, and tarry by my side when my last hour is near. Yes, this I hope from thee, despise not my request, to yield my soul in peace upon my mother's breast. THE ASSUMPTION OF MARY Fly, my soul, with Mary fly, Soar beyond the golden sky, Mount to Mary's throne on high. Bright the queenly crown she won, Sweet the reign she has begun, As she stands beside her son. How endure this long delay, Living here, how can I stay, From such beauty far away? Sad my lot is here below, who can hope or life bestow? Who will help or pity show? But thou far away from me, Still our sovereign queen will be, Full of love and clemency. With a mother's loving care, She will lift those hands so fair, And will save us by her prayer. Mother's heart can ne'er forget That we are her children yet, By such dangers fears beset. Gently still she bends her eyes On the souls that longs and sighs For her love the heavenly prize. Bless that soul who, like the dove, Born upon the wings of love, Follows her to heaven above. Fly, my soul, with Mary fly, Soar beyond the golden sky, Mount to Mary's throne on high. Three Meditations for the Feast of the Presentation of Mary The editor notes that the first translation of this meditation was made in 1868 from an unpublished manuscript of St. Alphonsus, preserved by the Redemptorist Fathers at Whitham, Holland. It has been thought fit to divide it into three parts, each of which bearing its own title. Those persons who have been called to consecrate themselves to God in the religious life will find this meditation a perfect model for imitation. Part 1. Mary offers herself to God promptly. Let us consider how prompt Mary was in offering herself to God. In her infancy, having scarcely attained the age of three years, knowing that her parents had made a vow to consecrate her to God, she was the first to request them to accomplish their promise by assuring them that the time had already come. She also it was who by her prayers obtained from God the strength to fulfill such a promise, for certainly very great was the violence that the holy parents had to do to themselves to deprive themselves so soon of a daughter whom they had so much desired to have, and who, 
from the tenderest age had so much charmed them by her amiability. Behold, now Joachim and Anne, generously sacrificing to God that which was the dearest to their hearts, setting out from Nazareth, accompanied by few relatives, but by a choir of angels. They had to carry their well-beloved little daughter by turns on account of the length of the journey from Nazareth to Jerusalem, it being a distance of eighty miles, as several authors say. Having reached the temple, they placed their cherished little daughter on the floor. The latter, the latter, having immediately ascended to the first step, turned to her parents and on her knees kissed their hands and asked them to bless her and recommend her to God. After having received the blessing and being fortified by the love with which she was going to serve her God, who had deigned to call her to his house, she ascended all the steps of the temple and ascended them with so much haste and zeal that she no more turned back, not even to look at her parents who remained there deeply afflicted, and at the same time filled with wonder at the sight of so much strength and courage in so young a child. Prayer Ah, holy child, it is thou who art the happy daughter of the Prince of the Earth praised by the Holy Scripture. How beautiful are thy steps, O Prince's daughter! Indeed, very dear and very pleasing to the eyes of the Lord and thy God have been the generous steps that thou didst take in the tenderest years of thy life, leaving thy father, thy house, and thy relatives to go to consecrate thyself entirely to his honor and to his service. Go thou, O sovereign lady, will I say with St. Germanus, go with joy into the house of God, to prepare thyself for the coming of the Holy Spirit, who is to come to make thee the mother of God himself. O happy virgin, who didst begin so soon to serve God, and who didst always serve him so faithfully, cast a look at me, who have returned to him with such tardiness, after so many years lost in the love of creatures, and obtained for me the grace to give him at least the remainder of my life, be it long or short. I know that I have very many times deserved to die in the state of sin. I know that it is thou who didst obtain for me the time to do penance, a grace that has not been granted to so many others. Ah, my most amiable queen, may my life, so unlike thine, excite in thee not the disgust that it merits, but rather thy compassion. Since thou hast already done so much for me, finish the work of my salvation. Do not abandon me till thou seest me safe at thy feet in paradise. Part 2 Mary offers herself to God entirely. Let us consider that what was most beautiful in this offering of Mary was that she con consecrated herself to the Lord, not only at so early an age, but that she did this in so thorough a manner. Already from the first moment of her existence in the womb of her mother, when by a singular privilege she received the use of reason with its great light with which at the same time the Lord enriched it, she gave herself up to God from the bottom of her heart. Yet her very holy soul was waiting with great longing for the day in which she might consecrate herself to God more effectively and thoroughly 
by becoming detached from all earthly things, even from every innocent affection for her parents who loved her so tenderly. Hence we may understand the consolation that was felt by her very pure heart when at her entrance into the temple, by a new act of the most ardent love, she devoted herself entirely to the glory of the Divine Majesty. Let us consider that this wonderful child, as soon as she found herself in the temple, first presented herself to her mistress, and on her knees humbly besought her to teach her all that she had to do. Afterwards she saluted her companions and begged them to condescend to admit her into their society. After these acts of propriety and humility, the youthful Mary turned all her thoughts toward God. She prostrated herself on the floor and kissed it as being the house of the Lord. She adored His infinite majesty and thanked Him for the great favor that she was receiving from His hands, namely the favor that He had thus obliged her to come to live for a time in His house. Then it was that she offered herself entirely to God without the least reserve by consecrating to Him all her faculties and all her senses, her whole mind and her whole heart, her whole soul and her whole body. For at this time, in order to please God the more, she made the vow of virginity, a new vow, unusual at that time and regarded by the Jews rather as a disgrace. But if Mary was the first to make such a vow, she was not the only one to do so, for it happened as David had foretold. After her shall virgins be brought to the king. Oh, how many very pure virgins have followed the example of Mary their queen! Again, Mary offered herself thus entirely, without limitation of time, for by this offering of herself she had the intention to devote herself to the service of God in the temple during her whole life, if such should be the good pleasure of the Lord, and never to depart from this holy place. Behold me now before thee, O Lord, this holy child must have said. I have come into thy house only to be thy servant. Accept the desire that I have of rendering to thee all the honor that I can render, and receive me into thy service by giving me the grace to be faithful to thee. The Blessed Virgin revealed to St. Elizabeth, a Benedictine nun, that when she was left in the temple, she resolved in her heart to think of nothing but of God alone. Prayer O Virgin, full of sweetness, when will the day come for me on which, detached from all earthly affections, I shall give myself entirely to God who during so many years has been waiting for me and calling me to his love. My most holy mother, today at last animated by thy example, I give myself with thee to God entirely and without reserve. I give him my soul, my body, my will. But I desire that thou first unite this offering that I make to him to that which in thy infancy thou didst make in the temple, and then that thou present it to the Lord with thy own hands. This still is not enough. Obtain for me besides the grace to be faithful to God as thou hast been thyself, in order that it may never happen that by a twofold ingratitude I take back 
what I give to him today. Part 3. The Life of Mary in the Temple Let us consider, finally, how holy and pleasing to God was the life of Mary in the Temple, in which, without intermission, she progressed in perfection, as the morning rising. Who could explain how, from day to day, all her virtues appeared more beautiful? One especially admired her modesty, silence, mortification, humility, sweetness. St. Anselm says that she had the habit of speaking little, of being affable and charitable towards everyone, and of obliging promptly. In fact, as was revealed to St. Bridget, the virtues that she practiced most in the temple were humility, charity, and obedience. Ah, certainly she did not walk, but she flew on the way of the Lord. St. Jerome says that her blessed soul was the abode of every virtue. She spent a certain time, as it is related, in doing some work that had been assigned to her, but the greatest part of the day and of the night she consecrated to prayer and to close entertainments with God in solitude. For this was the most cherished and the most desired occupation of her heart that was burning with love. It was her sweetest delight. Oh, how well did Mary in the temple know how to treat with God of the great work of the redemption of the world. Seeing perfectly the miserable condition of the world in which so many souls were lost, in which so few knew the true God, and among this number so few loved him. Ah, how much better than all the patriarchs and prophets did she pray by saying, Come, Lord, do not delay. Show us thy mercy. Send us the Lamb that is to rule the world. Ye heavens, let your rain descend, and send us the just, that the earth may bring forth the Savior. Prayer Thou very holy child, O great mistress of virtue and of love, since it is through thy love that the eternal word allowed himself to be drawn from the bosom of his Father to thy own, be ever blessed and ever thanked. How many beautiful lessons thou, thou, dost thou give by thy example? If we are only attentive in considering the life that thou hast led in the temple, ah, sweet queen, have compassion on me. Thou knowest the bad use that I have made of my past life. Thou knowest the great account that at the hour of death I am to render to Jesus Christ, thy son, and my judge. My charitable mistress, since thou hast been so good to me in helping me when I little thought of imploring thy aid and thy counsel, I do not fear that thou wilt abandon me now that I wish to obey thee and that I ask thy assistance. Do not banish me from thy school in which thou trainest so many souls to sanctity. Teach me what I should do to belong entirely to God and thus to repair the time that I have lost. Should I fail in my duty, O my Sovereign Lady, be so kind as to correct me and chastise me as thou mayest think fit. The chastisements coming from thy sweet hand to make me a saint will always be very dear to me. For pity's sake, O Mary, do not abandon me till thou seest me become thy perfect disciple in the love towards thy God and my God. For I know 
that it is only in order to love him that the time for me yet to live has been granted to me. My sovereign lady, I ask this favor of thee, and it is from thee that I hope to receive it. Amen. Part the Third The Dolors of Mary Discourse Mary is the queen of martyrs, for it, her martyrdom was longer and greater than that of all the martyrs. Who can ever have a heart so hard that it will not melt on hearing the most lamentable event that once occurred in the world? There was a noble and holy mother who had an only son. This son was the most amiable that can be imagined, innocent, virtuous, beautiful, who loved his mother most tenderly, so much so that he had never caused her the least displeasure but had ever shown her all respect, obedience, and affection. Hence, this mother had placed all her affections on earth in this son. Hear then what happened. This son, through envy, was falsely accused by his enemies. And, though the judge knew and himself confessed that he was innocent, yet that he might not offend his enemies, he condemned him to the ignominious death that they demanded. This poor mother had to suffer the grief of seeing that amiable and beloved son unjustly snatched from her in the flower of his age by a barbarous death, for by dint of torments and drained of all his blood he was made to die on an infamous gibbet in a public place of execution, and this before her own eyes. Devout souls, what say you? Is not this event... And is not this unhappy mother worthy of compassion? You already understand of whom I speak. This son so cruelly executed was our loving Redeemer, Jesus. And this mother was the Blessed Virgin Mary, who, for the love she bore us, was willing to see him sacrificed to divine justice by the barbarity of men. This great torment, then, which Mary endured for us, a torment that was more than a thousand deaths, deserves both our compassion and our gratitude. If we can make no other return for such love, at least let us give a few moments this day to consider the greatness of the sufferings by which Mary became the Queen of Martyrs, for the sufferings of her great martyrdom exceeded those of all the martyrs, being in the first place the longest in point of duration, and in the second place the greatest in point of intensity. Part 1. As Jesus is called the King of Sorrows and the King of Martyrs, because he suffered during his life more than all other martyrs, so also is Mary, with reason, called the Queen of Martyrs, having merited this title by suffering the most cruel martyrdom possible after that of her son. Hence, with reason, was she called by Richard of St. Lawrence the Martyr of Martyrs, and of her can the word of Isaiah with all truth be said, He will crown thee with a crown of tribulation. That is to say, that that suffering itself, which exceeded the suffering of all the other martyrs united, was the crown by which she was shown to be the queen of martyrs. That Mary was a true martyr cannot be doubted, as Dennis the Carthusian, Pelbart, Cartharnius, and others prove. For it is an undoubted question 
that suffering sufficient to cause death is martyrdom, even though death does not ensue from it. St. John the Evangelist is revered as a martyr, though he did not die in the cauldron of boiling oil, but came out more vigorous than when he went in. St. Thomas says that to have the glory of martyrdom it is sufficient to exercise obedience in its highest degree, that is to say, to be obedient unto death. Neri was a martyr, says St. Bernard, not by the sword of executioner, but by bitter sorrow of heart. If her body was not wounded by the hand of the executioner, her blessed heart was transfixed by a sword of grief at the passion of her son, grief which was sufficient to cause her death not once, but a thousand times. From this we shall see that Mary was not only a real martyr, but that her martyrdom surpassed all others, for it was longer than that of all others, and her whole life may be said to have been a prolonged death. The passion of Jesus, as St. Bernard says, began with his birth. So also did Mary, in all things like unto her son, endure her martyrdom throughout her life. Amongst other significations of the name of Mary, as Blessed Albert the Great asserts, is that of bitter sea. Hence to her is applicable the text of Jeremiah, Great as the sea is thy destruction. For as the sea is all bitter and salt, so also was the life of Mary always full of bitterness at the sight of the passion of the Redeemer, which was ever present to her mind. There can be no doubt that, enlightened by the Holy Ghost in a far higher degree than all the prophets, she, far better than they, understood the predictions recorded by them in the Holy Scriptures concerning the Messiah. This is precisely what the angel revealed to St. Bridget, and he also added that the Blessed Virgin, even before she became his mother, knowing how much the Incarnate Word was to suffer for the salvation of men, and compassionating this innocent Savior, who was to be so cruelly put to death for crimes not his own, even then began her great martyrdom. Her grief was immeasurably increased when she became the mother of this Savior, so that at the sad sight of the many torments that were to be endured by her poor son, she indeed suffered a long martyrdom, a martyrdom which lasted her whole life. This was signified with great exactitude to St. Bridget in a vision which she had in Rome in the church of St. Mary Major where the Blessed Virgin with St. Simeon and an angel bearing a very long sword reddened with blood appeared to her denoting thereby the long and bitter grief which transpierced the heart of Mary during her whole life. Whence the above-named Rupert supposes Mary thus speaking. Redeemed souls, and my beloved children, do not pity me only for the hour in which I beheld my dear Jesus expiring before my eyes, for the sword of sorrow predicted by Simeon pierced my soul during the whole of my life. When I was giving suck to my son, when I was warming him in my arms, I already foresaw the bitter death that awaited him. Consider then what long and bitter sorrows I must have endured." The Glories of Mary will continue on the second side of the tape.
We now continue with the glories of Mary by St. Alphonsus de Liguri. Wherefore, Mary might well say in the words of David, My life is wasted with grief and my years in sighs. My sorrow is continually before me. My whole life was spent in sorrow and in tears, for my sorrow, which was compassion for my beloved Son, never departed from before my eyes, as I always foresaw the sufferings and death which he was one day to endure. The Divine Mother herself revealed to St. Bridget that even after the death and ascension of her Son, whether she ate or worked, the remembrance of his passion was ever deeply impressed on her mind and fresh in her tender heart. Hence, Tuller says that the Blessed Virgin spent her whole life in continual sorrow, for her heart was always occupied with sadness and with suffering. Therefore, time, which usually mitigates the sorrows of the afflicted, did not relieve Mary, nay, it even increased her sorrows. For as Jesus, on the other hand, advanced in age and always appeared more and more beautiful and amiable, so also the time of his death always drew nearer, and grief always increased in the heart of Mary at the thought of having to lose him on earth, so that in the words addressed by the angel to St. Bridget, as the rose grows up amongst thorns, so the mother of God advanced in years in the midst of suffering. And as the thorns increase with the growth of the rose, so also did the thorns of her sorrows increase in Mary, the chosen rose of the Lord, as she advanced in age, and so much the more deeply did they pierce her heart. Part 2 Having now considered the length of this sorrow in point of duration, let us pass to the second point, its greatness in point of intensity. Ah, Mary is not only queen of martyrs because her martyrdom was longer than that of all others, but also because it was the greatest of all martyrdoms. Who, however, can measure its greatness? Jeremiah seems unable to find anyone with whom he can compare this mother of sorrows when he considers her great sufferings at the death of her son. To what shall I compare thee, or to what shall I liken thee, O daughter of Jerusalem? For great as the sea is thy destruction, who shall heal thee? Wherefore Cardinal Hugo, in a commentary on these words, says, O blessed Virgin, as the sea in bitterness exceeds all other bitternesses, so does thy grief exceed all other grief. Hence St. Anselm asserts that had not God by a special miracle preserved the life of Mary and each moment of her life, her grief was such that it would have caused her death. St. Bernardine of Siena goes so far as to say that the grief of Mary was so great that were it divided amongst all men, it would suffice to cause their immediate death. But let, let us, us consider the reasons for which Mary's martyrdom was greater than that of all martyrs. In the first place, we must remember that the martyrs endured their torments which were the effect of fire and other material agencies in their bodies. Mary suffered hers in her soul, as St. Simeon foretold, and thy own soul a sword shall pierce. As if the holy old man had said, O most sacred virgin, the bodies of other martyrs will be torn with iron, but thou wilt be transfixed and martyred in thy soul by the passion of thine own son. 
Now, as the soul is more noble than the body, so much greater were Mary's sufferings than those of all the martyrs, as Jesus Christ himself said to St. Catherine of Siena. Between the sufferings of the soul and those of the body there is no comparison. Whence the holy abbot Arnold of Chartres says that, that whoever, whoever had been present on Mount Calvary to witness the great sacrifice of the Immaculate Lamb would there have beheld two great altars, the one in the body of Jesus, the other in the heart of Mary. For on that mount, at the same time that the Son was sacrificed his body by death, Mary sacrificed her soul by compassion. Moreover, says St. Antoninus, while other martyrs suffered by sacrificing their own lives, the Blessed Virgin suffered by sacrificing her son's life, a life that she loved far more than her own, so that she not only suffered in her soul all that her son endured in his body, but moreover the sight of her son's torments brought more grief to her heart than if she had endured them all in her own person. No one can doubt that Mary suffered in her heart all the outrages that she saw inflicted on her beloved Jesus. Anyone can understand that the sufferings of children are also those of their mothers who witnessed them. St. Augustine, considering the anguish endured by the mother of the Maccabees in witnessing the tortures of her son, says, She, seeing their sufferings, suffered in each one because she loved them all. She endured in her soul what they endured in their flesh. Thus also did Mary suffer all those torments, scourges, thorns, nails, and the cross, which tortured the innocent flesh of Jesus. All entered at the same time into the heart of this blessed virgin to complete her martyrdom. He suffered in the flesh, and she in the heart, writes the blessed Amadeus. So much so, says St. Lawrence Justinian, that the heart of Mary became, as it were, a mirror of the passion of the Son, in which might be seen, faithfully reflected, the spitting, the blows and wounds, and all that Jesus suffered. St. Bonaventure also remarks that those wounds which were scattered over the body of our Lord were all united in the single heart of Mary. Thus was our Blessed Lady, through the compassion of her loving heart for her Son, scourged, crowned with thorns, insulted, and nailed to the cross. Whence the same saint, considering Mary on Mount Calvary, present at the death of her son, questions her in these words, O lady, tell me, where didst thou stand? Was it only at the foot of the cross? Ah, uh, much more than this, thou wast on the cross itself, crucified with thy son. Richard of St. Lawrence on the words of the Redeemer spoken by Isaiah the prophet, I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the Gentiles there is not a man with me, says, It is true, O Lord, that in the work of human redemption thou didst suffer alone, and that there was not a man who sufficiently pitied thee. But there was a woman with thee, and she was thine own mother. She suffered in her heart all that thou didst endure in thy body. But all this is saying too little of Mary's sorrows, since, as I have already observed, she suffered more in witnessing the sufferings of her beloved Jesus than if she had in herself endured all the outrages and death of her son. Erasmus, speaking of parents in general, says, 
that they are more cruelly tormented by their children's sufferings than by their own. This is not always true, but in Mary it evidently was so, for it is certain that she loved her son and his life beyond all comparison more than herself or a thousand lives of her own. Therefore, blessed Amadeus rightly affirms that the afflicted mother, at the sorrowful sight of the torments of her beloved Jesus, suffered far more than she would have done had she herself endured this passion. The reason is evident, for, as St. Bernard says, the soul is more where it loves than where it lives. Our Lord himself had already said the same thing. Where our treasure is, there also is our heart. If Mary then, by love, lived more in her son than in herself, she must have endured far greater torments in the sufferings and death of her son than she would have done had the most cruel death in the world been inflicted upon her. We will continue. Here we must reflect on another circumstance which rendered the martyrdom of Mary beyond all comparison greater than the torments of all the martyrs. It is that in the passion of Jesus she suffered much, and she suffered, moreover, without the least alleviation. The martyrs suffered under the torments inflicted on them by tyrants, but the love of Jesus rendered their pain sweet and agreeable. A St. Vincent was tortured on a rack, torn with pinchers, burnt with red-hot iron plates. But, as St. Augustine remarks, it seemed as if it was one who suffered and another who spoke. The saint addressed the tyrant with such energy and contempt for his torments that it seemed as if one Vincent suffered and another spoke. So greatly did God strengthen him with the sweetness of his love in the midst of all he endured. A St. Boniface had his body torn with iron hooks. Sharp pointed reeds were thrust between his nails and flesh. Melted lead was poured into his mouth, and in the midst of all he could not tire, saying, I give thee thanks, O Lord Jesus Christ. A St. Mark and a St. Marcellinus were bound to a stake, their feet pierced with nails. And when the tyrant addressed them, saying, Wretches, See to what a state you are reduced. Save yourselves from these torments. They answered, Of what pains, of what torments dost thou speak? We never enjoyed so luxurious a banquet as in the present moment, in which we joyfully suffer for the love of Jesus Christ. A St. Lawrence suffered, but when roasting on the fire gridian, the interior flame of the love, says St. Leo, was more powerful in consoling his soul than the flame without in torturing his body. Hence love rendered him so courageous that he mocked his tyrant, saying, If thou desirest to feed on my flesh, a part is sufficiently roasted, turn it and eat. But how, in the midst of so many torments, in that prolonged death, could the saint thus rejoice? Ah, replies St. Augustine, inebriated with the wine of divine love, he felt neither torments nor death so that the more the holy martyrs loved Jesus, the less did they feel their torments in death, and the sight alone of the sufferings of a crucified God was sufficient to console them. But was our suffering mother also consoled by the love for her son and the sight of his torments? Ah, no, 
for this very son who suffered was the whole cause of them, and the love she bore him was her only and most cruel executioner. For Mary's whole martyrdom consisted in beholding and pitying her innocent and beloved son who suffered so much. Hence the greater was her love for him, the more bitter and inconsolable was her grief. Great as the sea is thy destruction, who shall heal thee? Ah, Queen of Heaven, love has mitigated the sufferings of other martyrs, and healed their wounds. But who hath ever soothed thy bitter grief? Who hath ever healed the two cruel wounds of thy heart? Who shall heal thee, since that very Son, who could give thee consolation, was by his sufferings the only cause of thine, and the love which thou didst bear him was the whole ingredient of thy martyrdom? So that, as the other martyrs, as Diaz remarks, are all re represented in the instruments of their sufferings, St. Paul, Paul with a sword, St. Andrew with a cross, St. Lawrence with a gridiron, Mary is represented with her dead son in her arms, for Jesus himself, and he alone, was the instrument of her martyrdom, by reason of the love she bore him. Richard of St. Victor confirms in a few words all that I have now said. In other martyrs the greatness of their love soothed the pains of their martyrdom, but in the Blessed Virgin the greater was her love, the greater were her sufferings, the more cruel was her martyrdom. It is certain that the more we love a thing, the greater is the pain we feel in losing it. We are more afflicted at the loss of a brother than at the loss of a beast of burden. We are more grieved at the loss of a son than at the loss of a friend. Now Cornelius Elipide says that to understand the greatness of Mary's grief at the death of her son, we must understand the greatness of the love she bore him. But who can ever measure that love? Blessed Amadeus says that in the heart of Mary were united two kinds of love for her Jesus supernatural love, by which she loved him as her God, and natural love, by which she loved him as her Son. So that these two loves became one, but so immense a love that William of Paris even says that the Blessed Virgin loved him as much as it was possible for a pure creature to love him. Hence Richard of St. Victor affirms that as there was no love like her love, so there was no sorrow like her sorrow. And if the love of Mary towards her son was immense, immense also must have been her grief in losing him by death. Where there is the greatest love, says blessed Albert the Great, there also is the greatest grief. Let us now imagine to ourselves the Divine Mother standing near her son expiring on the cross, and justly applying to herself the words of Jeremiah, thus addressing us, O all ye that pass by the way, attend and see if there be any sorrow like to my sorrow. O you who spend your lives upon earth, and pity me not, stop a while to look at me, now that I behold this beloved son dying before my eyes, and then see if, amongst all those who are afflicted and tormented, a sorrow is to be found like unto my sorrow. No, O most suffering of all mothers, replies St. Bonaventure, 
no more bitter grief than thine can be found, for no son more dear than thine can be found. Ah, there never was a more amiable son in the world than Jesus, says Richard of St. Lawrence, nor has there ever been a mother who more tenderly loved her son than Mary. But since there never has been in the world a love like unto Mary's love, how can any sorrow be found like unto Mary's sorrow? Therefore St. Ildefonsus did not hesitate to assert, to say that Mary's sorrows were greater than all the torments of the martyrs united, was to say too little. And St. Anselm adds that the most cruel tortures inflicted on the holy martyrs were trifling, or as nothing in comparison with the martyrdom of Mary. St. Basil of Seleucia also writes that as the sun exceeds all the other planets in splendor, so did Mary's suffering exceed those of all the other martyrs. A learned author, Father Pinamonti, concludes with a beautiful sentiment. He says that so great was the sorrow of this tender mother and the passion of Jesus that she alone could compassionate adequately the death of a God-made man. But here St. Bonaventure, addressing the Blessed Virgin, says, And why, O lady, didst thou also go to sacrifice thyself on Calvary? Was not a crucified God sufficient to redeem us that thou, his mother, wouldst also go to be crucified with him? Indeed, the death of Jesus was more than enough to save the world, and an infinity of worlds. But this good mother, for the love she bore us, wished also to help the cause of our salvation with the merits of her sufferings, which she offered for us on Calvary. Therefore, Blessed Albert the Great says that as we are under great obligations to Jesus for his passion endured for our love, so also are we under great obligations to Mary for the martyrdom which she voluntarily suffered for our salvation in the death of her son. I say voluntarily since as St. Agnes revealed to St. Bridget, our compassionate and benign mother was satisfied rather to endure any torment than that our souls should not be redeemed and be left in their former state of perdition. And indeed, we may say that Mary's only relief in the midst of her great sorrow and the passion of her son was to see the lost world redeemed by his death and men who were his enemies reconciled with God. While grieving she rejoiced, says Simon of Cassia, that a sacrifice was offered for the redemption of all, by which he who was angry was appeased. So great a love on the part of Mary deserves our gratitude, and that gratitude should be shown by at least meditating upon and pitying her in her sorrows. But she complained to St. Bridget that very few did so, and that the greater part of the world lived in forgetfulness of them. I look around at all who are on earth to see if by chance there are any who pity me and meditate upon my sorrows, and I find that there are very few. Therefore, my daughter, though I am forgotten by many, at least do thou not forget me. Consider my anguish and imitate as far as thou canst my grief. To understand how pleasing it is to the Blessed Virgin that we should redeem, remember her dolors, we need only know that in the year 1239 she appeared to seven devout clients of hers, who
who were afterwards founders of the religious order of the servants of Mary, with a black garment in her hand, and desired them, if they wished to please her, often to meditate on her sorrows. For this purpose, and to remind them of her sorrows, she expressed her desire that in future they should wear that mourning dress. Jesus Christ himself revealed to the blessed Veronica da Binasco that he is, as it were, more pleased in seeing his mother compassionated than himself. For thus he addressed her, My daughter, tears shed for my passion are dear to me, but as I loved my mother Mary with an immense love, the meditation of the torments which she endured at my death is even more agreeable to me. Wherefore the graces promised by Jesus to those who are devoted to the dolors of Mary are very great. Pelbert relates that it was revealed to St. Elizabeth that after the assumption of the Blessed Virgin into heaven, St. John the Evangelist desired to see her again. The favor was granted him. His dear mother appeared to him, and with her Jesus Christ also appeared. The saint then heard Mary ask her son to grant some special grace to all those who are devoted to her dolors. Jesus promised her four principal ones. First, that those who before death invoked the Divine Mother in the name of her sorrows should obtain true repentance for all their sins. Second, that he would protect all who have this devotion in their tribulations, and that he would protect them especially at the hour of death. Third, that he would impress upon their minds the remembrance of his passion, and that they should have their reward for it in heaven. Fourth, that he would commit such devout clients to the hands of Mary, with the power to dispose of them in whatever manner she might please, and to obtain for them all the graces that she might desire. In proof of this, let us see in the following example how greatly devotion to the dolors of Mary aids in obtaining eternal salvation. Example In the Revelations of St. Bridget, we read that there was a rich man, as noble by birth as he was vile and sinful in his habits. He had given himself, by an express compact, as a slave to the devil, and for sixty successive years had served him, leading such a life as may be imagined, and never approached the sacraments. Now this prince was dying, and Jesus Christ, to show him mercy, commanded St. Bridget to tell her confessor to go and visit him and exhort him to confess his sins. The confessor went, and the sick man said that he did not require confession, as he had often approached the sacrament of penance. The priest went a second time, but this poor slave of hell persevered in his obstinate determination not to confess. Jesus again told the saint to desire the confessor to return. He did so, and on the third occasion told the sick man the revelation made to the saint, and that he had returned so many times because our Lord, who wished to show him mercy, had so ordered. On hearing this, the dying man was touched and began to weep. But how, he exclaimed, can I be saved? I, who for sixty years have served the devil as his slave, and have my soul burdened with innumerable sins. My son, answered the father, encouraging him, doubt not. If you repent of them on the part of God, I promise you pardon. Then 
Gaining confidence, he said to the confessor, Father, I looked upon myself as lost, and already despaired of salvation. But now I feel a sorrow for my sins, which gives me confidence. And since God has not yet abandoned me, I will make my confession. In fact, he made his confessions four times on that day, with the greatest marks of sorrow, and on the following morning received Holy Communion. On the sixth day, contrite and resigned, he died. After his death, Jesus Christ again spoke to St. Bridget, and told her that that sinner was saved, that he was then in purgatory, and that he owed his salvation to the intercession of the Blessed Virgin his mother, for the deceased, although he had led so wicked a life, had nevertheless always preserved devotion to the dolors, and whenever he thought of them he pitied her. Prayer O oh, my afflicted mother, queen of martyrs and of sorrows, thou didst so bitterly weep over thy son, who died for my salvation. But what will thy tears avail me if I am lost? By the merits, then, of thy sorrows, obtain for me true contrition for my sins, and a real amendment of life, together with constant and tender compassion for the sufferings of Jesus and thy dolors. And if Jesus and thou, being so innocent, have suffered so much for love of me, obtain that at least I, who am deserving of hell, may suffer something for your love. O lady, will I say with St. Bonaventure, If I have offended thee, injustice wound my heart. If I have served thee, I now ask wounds for my reward. It is shameful to me to see my Lord Jesus wounded, and thee wounded with him, and myself without a wound. In fine, O my mother, by the grief that thou didst experience in seeing thy son bow his head and expire on the cross in the midst of so many torments, I beseech thee to obtain me a good death. Ah, cease not, O advocate of sinners, to assist my afflicted soul in the midst of the combat in which it will have to engage on this great passage from time to eternity. And as it is probable that I may then have lost my speech and strength to invoke thy name and that of Jesus, who are all my hope, I do so now. I invoke thy Son and thee to succor me in that last moment, and I say, Jesus and Mary, to you I commend my soul. Amen. Reflections on each of the seven dollars of Mary. 1. St. Simeon's Prophecy In this valley of tears, every man is born to weep, and all must suffer, by enduring the evils which are of daily occurrence. But how much greater would the misery of life be did we also know the future evils which await us. Unfortunate indeed would his lot be, says Seneca, who, knowing the future, would have to suffer all by anticipation. Our Lord shows us this mercy. He conceals the trials which await us, that, whatever they may be, we may endure them but once. He did not show Mary this compassion, for she, whom God willed to be the queen of sorrows, and in all things like his son, 
had to see always before her eyes and continually to suffer all the torments that awaited her, and these were the sufferings of the passion and death of her beloved Jesus. For in the temple St. Simeon, having received the divine child in his arms, foretold to her that the Son would be a mark for all the persecutions that, and oppositions of men. Behold, this child is set for a sign which shall be contradicted, and therefore that a sword of sorrow should pierce her soul, and thy own soul a sword shall pierce. The Blessed Virgin herself told St. Matilda that on this announcement of St. Simeon all her joy was changed into sorrow, for as it was revealed to St. Teresa, though the Blessed Mother already knew that the life of her son would be sacrificed for the salvation of the world, yet she then learnt more distinctly and in greater detail the sufferings and cruel death that awaited her poor son. She knew that he would be contradicted, and this in everything, contradicted in his doctrines, for instead of being believed, he would be esteemed a blasphemer for teaching that he was the Son of God. This he was declared to be by the impious Caiaphas, saying, He hath blasphemed, he is guilty of death, contradicted in his reputation, for he was of noble, even of royal descent, and was despised as a peasant. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? He was wisdom itself, and was treated as ignorant. How doth this man know letters, having never learned? As a false prophet, and they blindfolded him and smote his face, saying, Prophecy, who was it that struck thee? He was treated as a madman. He is mad, why hear you him? As a drunkard, a glutton, and a friend of sinners. Behold, a man that is a glutton, and a drinker of wine, a friend of publicans and sinners as a sorcerer, by the prince of devils he casteth out devils, as a heretic and possessed by the evil spirit. Do we not say well of thee that thou art a Samaritan and hast a devil? In a word, Jesus was considered so notoriously wicked that, as the Jews said to Pilate, no trial was necessary to condemn him. If he were not a malefactor, we would not have delivered him up to thee. He was contradicted in his very soul, for even his eternal Father, to give place to divine justice, contradicted him by refusing to hear his prayer when he said, Father, if it be possible, let this chalice pass from me, and abandon him to fear, weariness, and sadness, so that our afflicted Lord exclaimed, My soul is sorrowful unto death. And his interior sufferings even caused him to sweat blood, contradicted and persecuted, in fine, in all his body and in his life. For he was tortured in all his sacred members, in his hands, his feet, his face, his head, and his whole body, so that, drained of his blood and an object of scorn, he died of torments on an ignominious cross. When David, in the midst of all his pleasures and regal grandeur, heard from the prophet Nathan, that his son should die. The child that is born to thee shall surely die. He could find no peace, but wept, 
fasted and slept on the ground. Mary, with the greatest calmness, received the announcement that her son should die, and always peacefully submitted to it. But what grief must she continually have suffered, seeing this amiable son always near her, hearing from him words of eternal life, and witnessing his holy demeanor. Abraham suffered much during the three days he passed with his beloved Isaac, after knowing that he was to lose him. O oh God, not for three days, but for three and thirty years had Mary to endure a like sorrow. But do I say a like sorrow? It was as much greater than the son of Mary was more lovely than the son of Abraham. The Blessed Virgin herself revealed to St. Bridget that while on earth there was not an hour in which this grief did not pierce her soul. As often, she continued, as I looked at my son, as often as I wrapped him in his swaddling clothes, as often as I saw his hands and feet, so often was my soul absorbed, so to say, in fresh grief, for I thought how he would be crucified. The abbot Rupert contemplates Mary suckling her son and thus addressing him. A bundle of myrrh is my beloved to me. He shall abide between my breasts. Ah, son, I clasp thee in my arms, because thou art so dear to me. But the dearer thou art to me, the more dost thou become a bundle of myrrh and sorrow to me when I think of thy sufferings. Mary, says St. Bernardine of Siena, reflected that the strength of the saints was to be reduced to agony, the beauty of paradise to be disfigured, the Lord of the world to be bound as a criminal, the creator of all things to be made livid with blows, the judge of all to be condemned, the glory of heaven despised, the king of kings to be crowned with thorns and treated as a mock king. Father Engelgrave says that it was revealed to the same St. Bridget that the afflicted mother, already knowing what her son was to suffer, when suckling him, thought of the gall and vinegar, when swathing him of the cords with which he was to be bound, when bearing him in her arms of the cross to which he was to be nailed, when sleeping of his death. As often as she put on him his garment, she reflected that it would one day be torn from him, that he might be crucified. And when she beheld his sacred hands and feet, she thought of the nails which would one day pierce them. And then, as Mary said to St. Bridget, my eyes filled with tears, and my heart was tortured with grief. The evangelist says that as Jesus Christ advanced in years, so also did he advance in wisdom and in grace with God in men. This is to be understood, as St. Thomas explains it, that he advanced in wisdom and grace in the estimation of men and before God, inasmuch as all his works would continually have availed to increase his merit, had not grace been conferred upon him from the beginning, in its complete fullness, by virtue of the hypostatic union. But since Jesus advanced in the love and esteem of others, how much more must have he advanced in that, that of Mary. But, O oh God, as love increased in her, so much the more did her grief increase, 
at the thought of having to lose him by so cruel a death. And the nearer the time of the passion of her son approached, so much the deeper did that sword of sorrow foretold by St. Simeon pierce the heart of his mother. This was precisely revealed by the angel to St. Bridget, saying, That sword of sorrow was every hour approaching nearer to the Blessed Virgin, as the time for the passion of her son drew near. Since then Jesus our King and his most holy mother did not refuse, for love of us, to suffer so cruel pains throughout their lives. It is reasonable that we, at least, should not complain if we have to suffer something. Jesus crucified once appeared to Sister Magdalene Orsnini, a Dominicanus, who had been long suffering under a great trial, and encouraged her to remain, by means of that affliction, with him on the cross. Sister Magdalene complainingly answered, O Lord, thou wast tortured on the cross only for three hours, and I have endured my pain for many years. The Redeemer then replied, Ah, ignorant soul, what dost thou say? From the first moment of my conception I suffered in heart all that I afterwards endured dying on the cross. If, then, we also suffer and complain, let us imagine Jesus and his mother Mary addressing the same words to ourselves. Example Father Rovigoloni of the Society of Jesus relates that a young man had the devotion of every day visiting a statue of Our Lady of Sorrows in which she was represented with seven swords piercing her heart. The unfortunate youth one night committed a mortal sin. The next morning, going as usual to visit the image, he perceived that there were no longer only seven, but eight swords in the heart of Mary. Wondering at this, he heard a voice telling him that his crime had added the eighth. This moved his heart, and penetrated with sorrow, he immediately went to confession, and by the intercession of his advocate recovered divine grace. Prayer Ah, my blessed mother, it is not one sword only with which I have pierced thy heart, but I have done so with as many as are the sins which I have committed. Ah, lady, it is not to thee who art innocent that sufferings are due, but to me who am guilty of so many crimes. But since thou hast been pleased to suffer so much for me, ah, by thy merits obtain me great sorrow for my sins and patience under the trials of this life which will always be light in comparison with my demerits, for I have often deserved hell. Amen. The Second Sorrow of Mary The Flight of Jesus into Egypt As the stag, wounded by an arrow, carries the pain with him wherever he goes, because he carries with him the arrow which has wounded him, so did the Divine Mother, after the sad prophecy of St. Simeon, as we have already seen in the consideration of the first dolor, always carry her sorrow with her in the continual remembrance of the passion of her son. Helgrino, explaining this passage of the canticles, the hairs of thy head, as the purple of the king, bound in the channel, says that these purple hairs were Mary's continual thoughts of the passion of Jesus, which kept the blood which was one day to flow from his wounds 
always before her eyes. Thy mind, O Mary, and thy thoughts, steeped in the blood of our Lord's passion, were always filled with sorrow, as if they actually beheld the blood flowing from his wounds. Thus her son himself was that arrow in the heart of Mary, and the more amiable he appeared to her, so much the more deeply did the thought of losing him by so cruel a death wound her heart. Let us now consider the second sort of sorrow which wounded Mary in the flight of her infant Jesus into Egypt from the persecution of Herod. Herod, having heard that the expected Messiah was born, foolishly feared that he would deprive him of his kingdom. Hence, St. Fulgentius, reproving him for his folly, thus addresses him, Why art thou troubled, O Herod? This king who is born comes not to conquer kings by the sword, but to subjugate them wonderfully by his death. The impious Herod, therefore, waited to hear from the holy Magi where the king was born, that he might take his life. But finding himself deceived, he ordered all the infants that could be found in the neighborhood of Bethlehem to be put to death. Then it was that the angel appeared in a dream to St. Joseph, and desired him to arise and take the child and his mother and fly into Egypt. According to Gerson, St. Joseph immediately on that very night made the order known to Mary, and taking the infant Jesus, they set out on their journey, as it is sufficiently evident from the gospel itself, who arose and took the child and his mother by night and retired into Egypt. O God, says the blessed Albert the Great in the name of Mary, must he then fly from men who came to save men? Then the afflicted mother knew that already the prophecy of Simeon concerning her son began to be verified. He is set for a sign that shall be contradicted, seeing that he was no sooner born than he was persecuted unto death. What anguish, writes St. John Chrysostom, must the intimation of that cruel exile of herself and her son have caused in her heart. Flee from thy friends to strangers, from God's temple to the temples of devils. What greater tribulation than that a newborn child hanging from its mother's breast, and she too in poverty, should with him be forced to fly. We will continue on the next tape. We now continue with The Glories of Mary by St. Alphonsus de Liguri. Anyone may imagine what Mary must have suffered on this journey. To Egypt the distance was great. Most authors agree that it was three hundred miles, so that it was a journey of upwards of thirty days. The road was, according to St. Bonaventure's description of it, rough, unknown, and little frequented. It was in the winter season, so that they had to travel in snow, rain, and wind through rough and dirty roads. Mary was then fifteen years of age, a delicate young woman, unaccustomed to such journeys. They had no one to attend upon them. St. Peter Chrysologus says, Joseph and Mary have no male or female servants. They were themselves both masters and servants. 
Oh God, what a touching sight must it have been to be held that tender virgin with her newborn babe in her arms, wandering through the world. But how, asked St. Bonaventure, did they obtain their food? Where did they repose at night? Where were they lodged? What can they have eaten but a piece of hard bread, either brought by St. Joseph or begged as an alms? Where can they have slept on such a road, especially on the two hundred miles of desert, where there were neither houses nor inns, as authors relate? unless on the sand or under a tree in a wood, exposed to the air and the dangers of robbers and wild beasts with which Egypt is abounded? Ah, had anyone met these three greatest personages in the world, for whom could he have taken them but for poor wandering beggars? They resided in Egypt, according to Brocard and Jansenius, in a district called Maturia, though St. Anselm says that they lived in the city of Heliopolis, or at Memphis, now called Old Cairo. Here let us consider the great poverty they must have suffered during the seven years which, according to St. Antoninus, St. Thomas, and others, they spent there. They were foreigners, unknown, without revenues, money, or relatives, barely able to support themselves by their humble efforts. As they were destitute, says St. Basil, it is evident that they must have labored much to provide themselves with the necessities of life. Landulf of Saxony has, moreover, written, and let this be consolation for the poor, that Mary lived there in the midst of such poverty that at times she had not even a bit of bread to give to her son. When urged by hunger, he asked her for it. After the death of Herod, St. Matthew relates, the angel again appeared to St. Joseph in a dream and directed them to return to Judea. St. Bonaventure, speaking of his return, considers how much greater the Blessed Virgin's sufferings must have been on account of the pains of Jesus being so much increased, as he was then about seven years of age, an age, remarks the saint, at which he was too big to be carried and not strong enough to walk without assistance. The sight, then, of Jesus and Mary wandering as fugitives through the world teaches us that we also must live as pilgrims here below, detached from the goods which the world offers us and which we must soon leave to enter eternity. We have not here a lasting city, but seek one that is to come. To which St. Augustine adds, Thou art a guest, Thou givest a look and passest on. It also teaches us to embrace crosses, for without them we cannot live in this world. Blessed Veronica de Benasco, an Augustinian nun, was carried in spirit to accompany Mary with the infant Jesus on their journey into Egypt. And after it the Divine Mother said, Daughter, thou hast seen which how much difficulty we have reached this country. Now learn that no one receives graces without suffering. Whoever wishes to feel less the sufferings of this life must go in company with Jesus and Mary. Take the child and his mother. All sufferings become light, and even sweet and desirable, to him who by his love bears this son and this mother in his heart. Let us then love them. 
Let us console Mary by welcoming in our hearts her Son, whom men even now continue to persecute by their sins. Example The Most Holy Virgin one day appeared to Blessed Collet, a Franciscan nun, and showed her the infant Jesus in a basin torn to pieces, and then said, Thus it is that sinners continually treat my son, renewing his death and my sorrows. My daughter, pray for them, that they may be converted. To this we may add another vision, which the venerable sister Joanna of Jesus and Mary, also a Franciscan nun, had. She was one day meditating on the infant Jesus persecuted by Herod, when she heard a great noise, as of armed men pursuing someone, and immediately she saw before her a most beautiful child, who, all out of breath and running, exclaimed, Oh, my Joanna, help me, conceal me. I am Jesus of Nazareth. I am flying from sinners, who wish to kill me and persecute me as Herod did. Do thou save me. Prayer Then, O Mary, even after thy son hath died by the hands of men who persecuted him unto death, these ungrateful men have not yet ceased persecuting him by their sins, and continue to afflict thee, O sorrowful mother. And, O God, I also have been one of these. Ah, my most sweet mother, obtain me tears to weep over such ingratitude. By the sufferings thou didst endure in the journey to Egypt, assist me in the journey in which I am now making to eternity that thus I may at length be united to thee in loving my persecuted Saviour in the kingdom of the blessed. Amen. The Third Sorrow The Loss of Jesus in the Temple The Apostle St. James says that our perfection consists in the virtue of patience, and patience hath a perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, failing in nothing. Our Lord having then given us the Blessed Virgin Mary as a model of perfection, it was necessary that she should be laden with sorrows, that in her we might admire heroic patience and endeavor to imitate, imitate it. The sorrow which we have this day to consider was one of the greatest that Mary had to endure in her life, the loss of her son in the temple. He who, he who is born blind feels but little the privation of the light of day, but he who has once enjoyed it and loses it by becoming blind indeed suffers much. Thus it is also with those unhappy souls who, blinded by the mire of the world, have but little knowledge of God. They suffer but little at not finding him. But on the other hand, he who, illumined by celestial light, has become worthy to find by love the sweet presence of the supreme good. O oh God, how bitterly does he grieve when he finds himself deprived of it! Hence, let us see how much Mary must have suffered from this third sword of sorrow which pierced her heart, when, having lost her Jesus in Jerusalem for three days, she was deprived of his most sweet presence, accustomed as she was constantly to enjoy it. St. Luke relates in the second chapter of his Gospel that the Blessed Virgin with her spouse, St. Joseph, and Jesus 
was accustomed every year at the Paschal Solemnity to visit the temple. When her son was twelve years of age, she went as usual, and Jesus remained in Jerusalem. Mary did not at once perceive it, thinking he was in the company with others. When she reached Nazareth, she inquired for her son, but not finding him, she immediately returned to Jerusalem to seek for him, and only found him after three days. Now let us imagine what anxiety this afflicted mother must have experienced in those three days during which she was seeking everywhere for her son and inquiring for him with the spouse of the in the canticles. Have you seen him whom my soul loveth? But she could have no tidings of him. Oh, with how far greater tenderness must Mary, overcome by fatigue, and having not yet found her beloved son, have repeated those words of Reuben concerning his brother Joseph. The boy doth not appear, and whither shall I go? My Jesus doth not appear, and I no longer know what to do to find him. But where shall I go without my treasure? Weeping continually, with how much truth did she repeat with David during those three days, my tears have been my bread day and night, whilst it is said to me daily, Where is thy God? Wherefore, Pelbart, with reason, says that during those nights the afflicted Mary did not sleep. She was constantly weeping and entreating God that he would enable her to find her son. Frequently during that time, according to St. Bernard, she addresses her son in the words of the spouse of the canticles. Show me where thou feedest, where thou liest in the midday, lest I begin to wander. My son, tell me where thou art, that I may no longer wander, seeking thee in vain. There are some who assert, and not without reason, that this dolor was not only one of the greatest, but the greatest and most painful of all. For, in the first place, Mary, in her other dolors, had Jesus with her. She suffered when St. Simeon prophesied to her in the temple. She suffered in the flight to Egypt, but still in company with Jesus. But in this dolor she suffered far from Jesus, not knowing where he was. And the light of my eyes itself is not with me. Thus weeping, she then said, Ah, the light of my eyes, my dear Jesus, is no longer with me. He is far from me, and I know not whither he is gone. Origen says that through the love which this holy mother bore her son, she suffered more in this loss of Jesus than any martyr ever suffered in the separation of his soul from his body. Ah, too long indeed were those three days for Mary. They seemed three ages. They were all bitterness, for there was none to comfort her. And who can ever comfort me, she said with Jeremiah, who can console me, since he who could alone do so is far from me, and therefore my eyes can never weep enough. Therefore do I weep, and my eyes run down with water, because the Comforter is far from me. And with Tobias she repeated, What manner of joy shall be to me who sit in darkness and see not the light of heaven? In the second place, Mary, in all her other sorrows, 
well understood their cause, the redemption of the world, the divine will. But in this she knew not the cause of the absence of her son. The sorrowful mother, says Lenspergius, was grieved at the absence of Jesus because in her humility she considered herself unworthy to remain longer with or to attend upon him on earth and have the charge of so great a treasure. And who knows, perhaps she thought within herself, maybe I have not served him as I ought, perhaps I have been guilty of some negligence for which he has left me. They sought him, says Origen, lest perchance he had entirely left them. It is certain that, to a soul that loves God, there can be no greater pain than the fear of having displeased him. Therefore, in this sorrow, alone did Mary complain, lovingly expostulating with Jesus, after she had found him, Son, why hast thou done so to us? Thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. By these words, she had no idea of reproving Jesus, as heretics blasphemously assert, but only meant to express to him the grief proceeding from the great love she bore him, which she had experienced during his absence. It was not a rebuke, says Dennis the Carthusian, but a loving complaint. This sorrow of Mary ought, in the first place, to serve as a consolation to those souls who are desolate, and no longer enjoy, as they once enjoyed, the sweet presence of their Lord. They may weep, but they should weep in peace, as Mary wept over the absence of her son. And let them take courage and not fear that on this account they have lost the divine favor. For God himself assured St. Teresa that no one is lost without knowing it, and that no one is deceived without wishing to be deceived. If our Lord withdraws himself from the sight of a soul that loves him, he does not, therefore, depart from the heart. He often conceals himself from a soul, that it may seek him with a more ardent desire and greater love. But whoever wishes to find Jesus must seek him, not amidst the delights and pleasures of the world, but amidst crosses and mortifications, as Mary sought him. We sought thee sorrowing, as Mary said to her son. Learn then from Mary, says Origen, to seek Jesus. Moreover, in this world she would seek no other good than Jesus. Job was not unhappy when he lost all that he possessed on earth, riches, children, health, and honors, and even descended from a throne to a dunghill. But because he had God with him, he was even then happy. St. Augustine says, He had lost what God had given him, but he still had God himself. Truly miserable and unhappy are those souls who have lost God. If Mary wept the absence of her son for three days, how should sinners weep who have lost divine grace and to whom God says, You are not my people, and I will not be yours? For this is the effect of sin. It separates the soul from God. Your iniquities have divided between you and your God. Hence, if sinners possess all the riches of the earth, but have lost God, all, even in this world, becomes vanity and affliction to them, as Solomon confessed. Behold, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. But the greatest misfortune of these poor blind souls is, as St. Augustine observes, 
that if they lose an ox, they do not fail to go in search of it. If they lose a sheep, they use all diligence to find it. If they lose a beast of burden, they cannot rest. But when they lose their God, who is the supreme good, they eat, drink, and repose. Example Saint Benvenuta once asked the Blessed Virgin for the grace to share the pain of the mother of Christ felt at the loss of her divine son. Mary appeared to her with the divine child in her arms. At the sight of the beautiful babe, Saint Benvenuta fell into an ecstasy, but the vision suddenly disappeared. The pain thus occasioned to the saint was so great that she besought Mary to help her lest she die of grief. After three days the Blessed Virgin appeared again and said, My daughter, your suffering is only a small part of that which I endured at the loss of my divine Son. Prayer O Blessed Virgin, why dost thou afflict thyself seeking for thy lost Son? Is it that thou knowest not where he is? Knowest thou not that he is in thy heart? Art thou ignorant that he feeds amongst lilies? Thou thyself hast said it, My beloved to me, and I to him who feedeth among the lilies. These, thy thoughts and affections, which are all humble, pure, and holy, are all lilies which invite thy divine spouse to dwell in thee. Ah, Mary, dost thou sigh after Jesus, thou who lovest none but Jesus? Leave sighs to me and to so many sinners who love him not, and who have lost him by offending him. My most amiable mother, if through my fault thy son is not yet returned to my soul, do thou obtain for me that I may find him. I will know that he is found by those who seek him. The Lord is good to the soul that seeketh him. But do thou make me seek him as I ought, Thou art the gate through which all find Jesus. Through thee I also hope to find him. Amen. The fourth sorrow, the meeting of Mary with Jesus when he was going to death. St. Bernadine says that to form an idea of the greatness of Mary's grief in losing her Jesus by death, we must consider the love that this mother bore to her son. All mothers feel the sufferings of their children as their own. Hence, when the Canaanitish woman entreated our Savior to deliver her daughter from the devil that tormented her, she asked him rather to pity her, the mother, than her daughter. Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously troubled by a devil. But what mother ever loved her son as Mary loved Jesus? He was her only son, reared amidst so many troubles, a most amiable son, and tenderly loving his mother, a son who, at the same time that he was her son, was also her God, who had come on earth to enkindle in the hearts of all the fire of divine love, as he himself declared, I am come to cast fire on the earth, and what will I but that it be kindled? Let us only imagine what a flame he must have enkindled in that pure heart of his holy mother, void as it was of every earthly affection. In fine, the Blessed Virgin herself told St. Bridget that 
that love had rendered her heart and that of her son but one. That blending together of servant and mother, of son and God, created in the heart of Mary a fire composed of a thousand flames. But the whole of this flame of love was afterwards, at the same time of the passion, changed into a sea of grief, when St. Bernadine declares that if all the sorrows of the world were united, they would not equal that of the glorious Virgin Mary. Yes, because, as Richard of St. Lawrence writes, the more tenderly his mother loved, so much the more deeply she was wounded. The greater was her love for him, the greater was her grief at the sight of his sufferings, and especially when she met her son, already condemned to death, and bearing his cross to the place of punishment. This is the fourth sort of sorrow that we have this day to consider. The Blessed Virgin revealed to St. Bridget that when the time of the Passion of our Lord was approaching, her eyes were always filled with tears as she thought of her beloved son, whom she was about to lose on earth, and that the prospect of that approaching suffering caused her to be seized with fear and a cold sweat to cover her whole body. Behold, the appointed day came at last, and Jesus, in tears, went to take leave of his mother before going to death. St. Bonaventure, contemplating Mary on that night, says, Thou didst spend it without sleep, and whilst others slept, thou didst remain watching. In the morning the disciples of Jesus Christ came out to this afflicted mother, the one to bring her one account, the other another. But all were tidings of sorrow, verifying in her the prophecy of Jeremiah. Weeping she hath wept in the night, and her tears on her, on her cheeks. There is none to comfort her of all them that were dear to her. Some then came to relate to her the cruel treatment of her son in the house of Caiaphas, and others the insults he had received from Herod. Finally, to come to our point, I omit all the rest. St. John came and announced to Mary that the most unjust Pilate had already condemned him to die on the cross. I say the most unjust Pilate, for, as St. Leo remarks, this unjust judge condemned him to death with the same lips with which he had declared him innocent. Ah, afflicted mother, said St. John, thy son is already condemned to death. He is already gone forth, bearing himself his cross on his way to Calvary. As the saint afterwards related in his Gospels, in bearing his own cross, he went forth to that place which is called Calvary. Come, if thou desirest to see him, and bid him a last farewell in some street through which he must pass. Mary goes with St. John, and by the blood with which the way is sprinkled, she perceives that her son has already passed. This she revealed to St. Bridget. By the footsteps of my son I knew where he had passed, for along the way the ground was marked with blood. St. Bonaventure represents the afflicted mother taking a shorter way and placing herself at the corner of a street to meet her afflicted son as he was passing by. The most sorrowful mother, says St. Bernard, met her most sorrowful son. 
While Mary was waiting in that place, how much must she have heard said by the Jews who soon recognized her against her beloved son, and perhaps even words of mocking against herself? Alas, what a scene of sorrows then presented itself before her! The nails, the hammers, the cords, the fatal instruments of the death of her son, all of which were borne before him. And what a sword must the sound of that trumpet have been to her heart which proclaimed the sentence pronounced against her Jesus! But behold, the instruments, the trumpeter, and the executioners have already passed. She raised her eyes and saw, O oh God, a young man covered with blood and wounds from head to foot, a wreath of thorns on his head, and two heavy beams on his shoulders. She looked at him and hardly recognized him, saying with Isaiah, And we have seen him, and there was no slightliness. Yes, for the wounds, the bruises, and the clotted blood gave him the appearance of a leper. We have thought him, as it were, a leper, so that he could no longer be known. And his look was, as it were, hidden and despised, whereupon we esteemed him not. But at length love revealed him to her, and as soon as she knew that it indeed was he, ah, oh, what love and fear must then have filled her heart! As St. Peter of Alcantara says in his meditations, on the one hand she desired to behold him, and on the other she dreaded so heart-rending a sight. At length they looked at each other. The sun wiped from his eyes the clotted blood which, as it was revealed to St. Bridget, prevented him from seeing, and looked at his mother, and the mother looked at her son. Ah, looks of bitter grief, which, as so many arrows, pierced through and through those two beautiful and loving souls. When Margaret, the daughter of Sir Thomas More, met her father on his way to death, she could only exclaim, O oh, Father, Father, and fell fainting at his feet. Mary, at the sight of her son on his way to Calvary, did not faint. No, for it was not becoming, as Father Suarez remarks, that this mother should lose the use of her reason. Nor did she die, for God reserved her for greater grief. But though she did not die, her sorrow was enough to have caused her a thousand deaths. The mother would have embraced him, as St. Anselm says, but the guards thrust her aside with insults and urged forward the suffering Lord, and Mary followed him. Ah, holy virgin, whither goest thou? To Calvary. And canst thou trust thyself to behold him who is thy life hanging on a cross? and thy life shall be, as it were, hanging before thee. Ah, stop, my mother, says St. Lawrence Justinian, in the name of the Son. Where goest thou? Where wouldst thou come? If thou comest whither I go, thou wilt be tortured with my sufferings, and I with thine. But although the sight of her dying Jesus was to cost her so bitter sorrow, the loving Mary will not leave him, the son advanced, and the mother followed to be also crucified with her son. As the abbot William says, the mother also took up her cross and followed to be crucified with him. We even pity wild beasts, 
as St. John Chrysostom writes. And did we see a lioness following her cub to death, the sight would move us to compassion. And shall we not also be moved to compassion on seeing Mary follow her immaculate lamb to death? Let us then pity her, and let us also accompany her son and herself by bearing with patience the cross that our Lord imposes upon us. St. John Chrysostom asks why Jesus Christ, in his other sufferings, was pleased to endure them alone, but in carrying his cross was assisted by the Cyrenian. He replies that it was that thou mayest understand that the cross of Christ is not sufficient without thine. Example Our Savior one day appeared to Sister Diomyra, a nun in Florence, and said, Think of me and love me, and I will think of thee and love thee. At the same time he presented her with a bunch of flowers and a cross, signifying thereby that the consolations of the saints in this world are always to be accompanied by the cross. The cross unites souls to God. Blessed Jerome Emilian, when a soldier, and loaded with sins, was shut up by his enemies in a tower. There, moved by his misfortunes and enlightened by God to change his life, he had recourse to the ever-blessed Virgin, and from that time, by the help of this Divine Mother, he began to lead the life of a saint, so much so that he merited once to see the very high place that God had prepared for him in heaven. He became the founder of the religious order of the Somaschi, died a saint, and has lately been canonized by the Holy Church. Prayer My most sorrowful mother, by the merit of that grief which thou didst feel in seeing thy beloved Jesus led to death, obtain me the grace that I also may bear with patience the crosses which God sends me. Happy indeed shall I be if I only know how to accompany thee with my cross until death. Thou with thy Jesus, and you were both innocent, hast carried a far heavier cross, and shall I, a sinner, who have deserved hell, refuse to carry mine? Ah, Immaculate Virgin, from thee do I hope for help to bear all crosses with patience. Amen. The Fifth Sorrow, The Death of Jesus We have now to witness a new kind of martyrdom, a mother condemned to see an innocent son, and one whom she loves with the whole affection of her soul, cruelly tormented and put to death before her own eyes. There stood by the cross of Jesus his mother. St. John believed that in these words he had said enough of Mary's martyrdom. Consider her at the foot of the cross in the presence of her dying son, and then see if there be a sorrow like unto her sorrow. Let us remain for a while this day on Calvary and consider the fifth sword which, in the death of Jesus, transfixed the heart of Mary. As soon as our agonized Redeemer had reached the Mount of Calvary, the executioner stripped him of his clothes and pierced his hands and feet, not with sharp but with blunt nails, as St. Bernard says, to torment him more. They fastened him to the cross. Having crucified him, they planted the cross, and thus left him to die. The executioners left him, but not so Mary. 
She then drew nearer to the cross to be present at his death. I did not leave him, thus the Blessed Virgin revealed to St. Bridget, but stood nearer to the cross. But what did it avail thee, O lady, says St. Bonaventure, to go to Calvary and see this son expire? Shame should have prevented thee, for his disgrace was thine, since thou wert his mother. At least horror of witnessing such a crime as the crucifixion of a god by his own creature should have prevented thee from going there. But the same saint answers, Ah, thy heart did not then think of its own sorrows, but of the sufferings and death of thy dear son. And therefore thou wouldst thyself be present, at least to compassionate him. Ah, true mother, says the abbot William, most loving mother, whom not even the fear of death could separate from thy beloved son. But, O oh God, what a cruel sight was it there to behold this son in agony on the cross, and at its foot this mother in agony suffering all the torments endured by her son. Listen to the words in which Mary revealed to St. Bridget the sorrowful state in which she saw her dying son on the cross. My dear Jesus was breathless, exhausted, and in his last agony on the cross. His eyes were sunk, half-closed and lifeless, his lips hanging and his mouth open, his cheeks hollow and drawn in, his face elongated, his nose sharp, his countenance sad. His head had fallen on his breast, his hair was black with blood, his stomach collapsed, his arms and legs stiff, and his whole body covered with wounds and blood. All these sufferings of Jesus were also those of Mary. Every torture inflicted on the body of Jesus, says St. Jerome, was a wound in the heart of the mother. Whoever then was present on the Mount of Calvary, says St. John Chrysostom, might see two altars on which two great sacrifices were consummated, the one in the body of Jesus, the other in the heart of Mary. Nay, better still may we say with St. Bonaventure, there was but one altar, that of the cross of the Son, on which, together with his divine Lamb, the victim, the mother was also sacrificed. Therefore the saint asks this mother, O lady, where art thou, near the cross? Nay, rather thou art on the cross, crucified, sacrificing thyself with thy Son. St. Augustine assures us of the same thing. The cross and nails of the Son were also those of his mother. With Christ crucified, the mother was also crucified. Yes, for, as St. Bernard says, love inflicted on the heart of Mary those tortures caused by nails in the body of Jesus. So much so that, as St. Bernardine writes, at the same time that the Son sacrificed his body, the mother sacrificed her soul. Mothers ordinarily fly from the presence of their dying children, but when a mother is obliged to witness such a scene, she procures all possible relief for her child. She arranges his bed, that he may be more at ease. She administers refreshments to him, and thus the poor mother soothes her own grief. Ah, most afflicted of all mothers, O oh Mary, Thou hast to witness the agony of thy dying Jesus, but thou canst administer him no relief. 
Mary heard her son exclaim, I thirst, but she could not even give him a drop of water to refresh him in that great thirst. She could only say, as St. Vincent Ferrer remarks, My son, I have only the water of tears. She saw that on the bed of torture her son, suspended by three nails, could find no repose. She would have clasped him in her arms to give him relief, or that at least he might there have expired, but she could not. In vain, says St. Bernard, did she extend her arms. They sank back empty on her breast. She beheld that poor son who, in his sea of grief, sought consolation, as it was foretold by the prophet, but in vain. I have trodden the winepress alone. I looked about, and there was none to help. I sought, and there was none to give aid. But who amongst men could, would console him, since all were enemies? Even on the cross he was taunted and blasphemed on all sides, and they that passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads. Some said to his face, If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Others, he saved others, himself he cannot save. Again, if he be the King of Israel, let him now come down from the cross. Our Blessed Lady herself said to St. Bridget, I heard some say that my son was a thief, others that he was an impostor, others that no one deserved death more than he did, and every word was a new sort of grief to my heart. But that which the most increased the sorrows which Mary endured through compassion for her son was hearing him complain on the cross that even his eternal father had abandoned him. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Words which the Divine Mother told the same St. Bridget could never, during her whole life, depart from her mind, so that the afflicted mother saw her Jesus suffering on every side. She desired to comfort him, but could not. That which grieved her the most was to see that she herself, by her presence and sorrow, increased the sufferings of her son. The grief, says St. Bernard, which filled Mary's heart as a torrent flowed into and embittered the heart of Jesus. So much so, says the same saint, that Jesus on the cross suffered more from the compassion for his mother than from his own torments. He thus speaks in the name of our Blessed Lady. I stood with my eyes fixed on him and his on me, and he grieved more for me than for himself. And then, speaking of Mary beside her dying son, he says that she lived dying without being able to die. Near the cross of Christ his mother stood half dead. She spoke not. Dying she lived, and living she died. Nor could she die, for death was her very life. Pacino writes that Jesus Christ himself one day, speaking to Blessed Baptista Verani of Camerino assured her that when on the cross so great was his affliction at seeing his mother at his feet in so bitter an anguish that compassion for her caused him to die without consolation, so much so that the blessed Baptista, being supernaturally enlightened as to the greatness of the suffering of Jesus, exclaimed, O Lord, tell me no more of this thy sorrow, for I can no longer bear it. All, says Simon of Cassia, 
who then saw this mother silent, and not uttering a complaint in the midst of so great a suffering, were filled with astonishment. But if Mary's lips were silent, her heart was not so, for she insistently offered the life of her Son to the divine justice for our salvation. Therefore, we know that by the merits of her dolors, she cooperated in our birth to the life of grace, and hence we are the children of her sorrows. Christ, says Lansbergius, was, was pleased that she, the cooperatress in our redemption, and whom he had determined to give us for our mother, should be there present, for it was at the foot of the cross that she was to bring us, her children, forth. If any consolation entered that sea of bitterness, the heart of Mary, the only one, was this, that she knew that by her sorrows she was leading us to eternal salvation, as Jesus himself revealed to St. Bridget. My mother Mary, on account of her compassion and love, was made the mother of all in heaven and on earth. And indeed, these were the last words with which Jesus bid her farewell before his death. This was his last recommendation, leaving us to her for her children in the person of St. John. Woman, behold thy son. From that time Mary began to perform this good office of a mother for us. For St. Peter Damien attests that by the prayers of Mary, who stood between the cross of the good thief and that of her son, the thief was converted and saved, and thereby she repaid a former service. For, as the other authors relate, this thief had been kind to Jesus and Mary on their journey to Egypt, and this same office of the Blessed Virgin has ever continued, and still continues, to perform. The Glories of Mary will continue on the second side of the tape. We now continue with the Glories of Mary by St. Alphonsus de Liguri. Example Blessed Joachim Piccolomini had always a most tender devotion for Mary, and from his childhood was in the habit of visiting an image of our Blessed Lady of Sorrows, which was in the neighboring church three times a day, and on Saturdays in her honor he abstained from all food, and in addition to this he always rose at midnight to meditate on her dolors. But let us see how abundantly this good mother recompensed him. In the first place, when he was a young man, she appeared to him and desired him to embrace the order of the Servites, and this the holy young man did. Again, in the later years of his life, she appeared to him with two crowns in her hands. The one was composed of rubies, and this was to reward him for his compassion for her sorrows, the other of pearls, as a recompense for his virginity, which he vowed in her honor. Shortly before this, his death, she once more appeared to him, and then the saint begged as a favor that he might die on the same day on which Jesus Christ had expired. Our Blessed Lady immediately gratified him, saying, It is well. Prepare thyself, for tomorrow, Good Friday, thou shalt die suddenly as thou desirest. Tomorrow thou shalt be with me in heaven. 
And so it was, for the next day, during the singing of the Passion according to St. John, at the words, Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother, he fell into the last struggles of death, and at the words, He bowed down his head and expired, the saint also breathed his last, and in the same moment the whole church was filled with an extraordinary light and most delicious perfume. Prayer Ah, Mother, the most sorrowful of all mothers, thy son is then dead, that son so amiable, and who loved thee so much. Weep, then, for thou hast reason to weep. Who can ever console thee? The thought alone that Jesus by his death conquered hell, opened heaven until then closed to men, and gained so many souls can console thee. From that throne of the cross he will reign in so many hearts, which, conquered by his love, will serve him with love. Disdain not, in the meantime, O my mother, to keep me near thee, to weep with thee, since I have so much reason to weep for the crimes by which I have offended him. Ah, mother of mercy, I hope, first through the death of my Redeemer, and then through thy sorrows, to obtain pardon and eternal salvation. Amen. The Sixth Sorrow the piercing of the side of Jesus and his descent from the cross. O all ye that pass by the way, attend, and see if there be any sorrow like to my sorrow. Devout souls, listen to what the sorrowful Mary says this day. My beloved children, I do not wish you to console me. No, for my soul is no longer susceptible of consolation in this world after the death of my dear Jesus. If you wish to please me, this is what I ask of you. Behold me, and see if there ever has been in the world a grief like mine, in seeing him who was all my love, torn from me with such cruelty. But, my sovereign lady, since thou wilt not be consoled and hast so great a thirst for sufferings, I must tell thee that, even with the death of thy son, thy sorrows have not ended. On this day thou wilt be wounded by another sort of sorrow. A cruel lance will pierce the side of thy son already dead, and thou hast to receive him in thine arms after he is taken down from the cross. Now we are to consider the sixth dolor, which afflicted this poor mother. Attend and weep. Hitherto the dolors of Mary tortured her one by one. On this day they are all, as it were, united to assail her. It is enough to tell a mother that her son is dead, to excite all her love towards her lost child. Some persons, that they may lessen a mother's grief, remind her of the displeasure at one time caused by her departed child. But I, my queen, did I thus wish to lighten thy grief for the death of Jesus? For what displeasure hath he ever caused thee, could I remind thee? No, indeed, he always loved thee, always obeyed thee, and always respected thee. Now thou hast lost him. Who can ever tell thy grief? Do thou explain it, thou who hast experienced it. A devout author says that when our beloved Redeemer was dead, 
The first care of the Great Mother was to accompany in spirit the most holy soul of her Son, and present it to the Father. I present thee, O my God, Mary must then have said, the immaculate soul of thine in my Son. He has now obeyed thee unto death. Do thou then receive it in thine arms. Thy justice is now satisfied. Thy will is accomplished. Behold, the great sacrifice to thy eternal glory is consummated. Then, turning towards the lifeless members of her Jesus, O wounds, she said, O wounds of love, I adore you, and in you do I rejoice, for by your means salvation is given to the world. You will remain open in the body of my Son, and be the refuge of those who have recourse to you. Oh, how many through you will receive the pardon of their sins and by you be inflamed with love for the supreme good. That the joy of the following Paschal Sabbath might not be disturbed, the Jews desired that the body of Jesus should be taken down from the cross. But as this could not be done unless the criminals were dead, men came with iron bars to break our Lord's legs, as they had already done to those two thieves who were crucified with him. Mary was still weeping over the death of her son when she saw these armed men advancing towards her Jesus. At this sight she first trembled with fear and then exclaimed, Ah, oh, my son is already dead. Cease to outrage him. Torment me no more, who am his poor mother. She implored them, writes St. Bonaventure, not to break his legs. But while she thus spoke, O oh God, she saw a soldier brandish a lance and pierce the side of Jesus. One of the soldiers with a spear opened his side, and immediately there came out blood and water. At the stroke of the spear the cross shook, and as it was afterwards revealed to St. Bridget, the heart of Jesus was divided into two. There came out blood and water, for only those few drops of blood remained and even those our Savior was pleased to shed, that we might understand that he had no more blood to give us. The injury of that stroke was inflicted on Jesus, but Mary suffered its pain. Christ, says the devout Lenspergius, shared this wound with his mother. He received the insult. His mother endured its agony. The Holy Fathers maintain that this was literally the sword foretold to the Blessed Virgin by St. Simeon, a sword, not a material one, but one of grief, which transpierced her blessed soul in the heart of Jesus, where it always dwelt. Thus, amongst others, St. Bernard says, The lance which opened his side passed through the soul of the Blessed Virgin, which could never leave her son's heart. The Divine Mother herself reveal the same thing to St. Bridget. When the spear was drawn out, the point appeared red with blood. Then, seeing the heart of my most dear son pierced, it seemed to me as if my own heart was also pierced. An angel told the same saint that such were the sufferings of Mary, that it was only by a miraculous interposition on the part of God that she did not die. In her other dolors, she at least had her son to compassionate her, but now she has not even him to pity her. The afflicted mother, fearing that other injuries might still be inflicted on her son, 
entreated Joseph of Arimathea to obtain the body of her Jesus from Pilate, that at least in death she might guard and protect it from further outrage. Joseph went and represented to Pilate the grief and desires of his afflicted mother. St. Anselm believes that compassion for the mother softened the heart of Pilate and moved him to grant her the body of our Savior. Jesus was then taken down from the cross. O most sacred virgin, after thou hast given thy Son to the world with so great love for our salvation, behold, the world now restores him to thee, but, O God, in what state dost thou receive him? O world, said Mary, how dost thou return him to me? My son was white and ruddy, but thou returnest him to me blackened with bruises and red, yes, but with the wound which thou hast inflicted upon him. He was all fair and beautiful, but now there is no more beauty in him. He is all disfigured. His aspect enamored all. Now he excites horror in all who behold him. Oh, how many swords, says St. Bonaventure, pierced the poor mother's soul when she received the body of her son from the cross. Let us only consider the anguish it would cause any mother to receive into her arms the body of her lifeless son. It was revealed to St. Bridget that three ladders were placed against the cross to take down the sacred body. The holy disciples first drew out the nails from the hands and feet, and, according to Metaphrastes, gave them to Mary. Then one supported the upper part of the body of Jesus, and the other the lower, and thus they took it from the cross. Bernadine de Bustis describes the afflicted mother as standing and extending her arms to meet her dear son. She embraced him, and then sat at the foot of the cross. His mouth was open, his eyes were dim. She then examined his mangled flesh and uncovered bones. She took off the crown, and saw that the sad injuries which the thorns had afflicted on that sacred head. She saw the holes in his hands and his feet, and thus addressed him, Ah, son, to what has thy love for men brought thee? And what evil hast thou done them, that they should thus cruelly have tormented thee? Thou wast my father, continues Bernadine de Bustis in Mary's name. Thou wast my brother, my spouse, my delight, my glory. Thou wast my all. My son, see my affliction. Look at me, console me. But no, thou no longer lookest at me. Speak, say but a word, and console me but thou speakest no more, for thou art dead. Then, turning to those barbarous instruments of torture, she said, O cruel thorns, O cruel nails, O merciless spear, how, how could you thus torture your Creator? But why do I speak of thorns or nails? Alas, sinners, she exclaimed, it is you who have thus cruelly treated my son. Thus did Mary speak and complain of us. But what would she now say, were she still susceptible of suffering? What would be her grief to see that men, notwithstanding that her son has died for them, still continue to torment and crucify him by their sins? Let us, at least, cease to torment this afflicted mother, and if we have hitherto grieved her by our sins, 
let us now do all that she desires. She says, Return, ye transgressors, to the heart. Sinners, return to the wounded heart of my Jesus. Return as penitents, and he will welcome you. Flee from him to him, she continues to say with the abbot Guerrick, from the judge to the redeemer, from the tribunal to the cross. Our Blessed Lady herself revealed to St. Bridget that she closed the eyes of her son when he was taken down from the cross, but she could not close his arms. Jesus Christ giving us thereby to understand that he desired to remain with his arms extended to receive all penitent sinners who returned to him. O world, continues Mary, behold then, thy time is the time of lovers. Now that my son has died to save thee, it is no longer for thee a time of fear, but one of love, a time to love him who, to show thee the love he bore thee, was pleased to suffer so much. The heart of Jesus, says St. Bernard, was wounded that, through the visible wound, the invisible wound of love might be seen. If then, concludes Mary, in the words of Blessed Raymond Giordano, my son, by excess of love, was pleased that his side should be opened, that he might give thee his heart. It is right, O man, that thou in return shouldst also give him thine. And if you desire, O children of Mary, to find a place in the heart of Jesus without fear of being rejected, go, says Ubertino da Cassel, go with Mary, for she will obtain the grace for you. Example In the city of Cecina there lived two sinners who were two great friends. One of them whose name was Bartholomew, in the midst of his wickedness, preserved the devotion of daily reciting the hymn Stabat Mater in honor of Mary in sorrow. He was one day reciting this hymn when he had a vision in which he seemed to stand with his wicked friend in a lake of fire, and he saw that the Most Holy Virgin, moved to compassion, extended her hand to him, withdrew him from the fire, and advised him to ask pardon of Jesus Christ, who seemed to forgive him on account of the prayers of his mother. After the vision, Bartholomew heard that his companion was dead, having been shot, and he thus knew that what he had seen was true. He then renounced the world and entered the order of Capuchins, where he led a most austere life and died with the reputation of sanctity. Prayer. O afflicted virgin, O soul great in virtue, but great also in sorrow, for the one and the other took their rise in that immense love with which thy heart was inflamed towards God, for thou couldst love him alone. Ah, mother, pity me, for instead of loving God, I have greatly offended him. Thy sorrow encourages me to hope for pardon but this is not enough. I wish to love my Lord, and who can better obtain me this love than thou, who art the mother of fair love? Ah, Mary, thou comfortest all. Console me also. Amen. The Seventh Sorrow of Mary, The Burial of Jesus When a mother is by the side of her suffering and dying child, 
she undoubtedly feels and suffers all his pains. But after he is actually dead, when, before the body is carried to the grave, the afflicted mother must bid her child a last farewell, then indeed the thought that she is to see him no more is a grief that exceeds all other griefs. Behold the last sword of Mary's sorrow, which we have now to consider. For after witnessing the death of her son on the cross and embracing for a last time his lifeless body, this blessed mother had to leave him in the sepulchre, never more to enjoy his beloved presence on earth. That we may better understand this last dolor, we will return to Calvary and consider the afflicted mother, who still holds the lifeless body of her son clasped in her arms. O oh, my son, she seemed to say in the words of Job, my son, thou art changed to be cruel towards me. Yes, for all thy noble qualities, thy beauty, grace, and virtues, thy engaging manners, all the marks of special love which thou hast bestowed upon me, the peculiar favors thou hast granted me, all are now changed into grief, and as so many arrows pierce my heart, and the more they have excited me to love thee, so much the more cruelly do they now make me feel thy loss. Ah, my own beloved son, in losing thee I have lost all. Thus does St. Bernard speak in her name. O truly begotten of God, thou wast to me a father, a son, a spouse. Thou wast my very soul. Now I am deprived of my father, widowed of my spouse, a desolate childless mother. Having lost my only son, I have lost all. Thus was Mary with her son locked in her arms, absorbed in grief. The holy disciples, fearful that the poor mother might die of grief, approached her to take the body of her son from her arms and to bear it away for his burial. This they did with gentle and respectful violence, and having embalmed it, they enwrapped it in a linen cloth which was already prepared. On this cloth, which is still preserved at Turin, our Lord was pleased to leave the world an impression of his sacred body. The disciples then bore him to the tomb. To do this, they first of all raised the sacred body on their shoulders, and then the mournful train set forth. Choirs of angels from heaven accompanied it. The holy women followed, and with them the afflicted mother also followed her son to the place of burial. When they had reached the appointed place, oh, how willingly would Mary have there buried herself alive with her son had such been his will. For this she re herself revealed to St. Bridget. But such not being the divine will, there were many authors who say that she accompanied the sacred body of Jesus into the sepulchre, where, according to Baronius, the disciples also deposited the nails and the crown of thorns. In raising the stone to close up the entrance, the holy disciples of the Savior had to approach the Blessed Lady and say, Now, O Lady, we must close the sepulchre. Forgive us. Look once more at thy son and bid him a last farewell. Then, my beloved son, for thus must have the afflicted mother have spoken, then I shall see thee no more. Receive, therefore, on this last occasion that I behold thee, receive my last farewell, 
the farewell of thy dear mother, and receive also my heart, which I leave buried with thee. The Blessed Virgin, writes St. Fulgentius, would ardently have desired to bury her soul with the body of Christ. And this Mary herself revealed to St. Bridget, saying, I can truly say that at the burial of my son, one tomb contained, as it were, two hearts. Finally, the disciples raised the stone and closed up the holy sepulcher, and in it the body of Jesus, that great treasure, a treasure so great that neither earth nor heaven had a greater. Here I may be permitted to make a short digression and remark that Mary's heart was buried with Jesus because Jesus was her whole treasure. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And where, may we ask, are our hearts buried? In creatures, perchance in mire. And why not in Jesus, who, although he has ascended into heaven, is still pleased to remain on earth, not dead indeed, but living in the most holy sacrament of the altar, precisely that our hearts may be with him, and that he may possess them. But let us return to Mary. Before leaving the sepulchre, according to St. Bonaventure, she blessed the sacred stone which closed it, saying, O happy stone, that doth now enclose that sacred body for which nine months was contained in my womb, I bless thee and envy thee. I leave thee the guardian of my son, of that son who is my whole treasure and all my love. Then, raising her heart to the Eternal Father, she said, O Father, to thee do I recommend him, him who is thy son at the same time that he is mine. Thus bidding her last farewell to her beloved Jesus and to the sepulchre, she left it and returned to her own house. This mother, says St. Bernard, went away so afflicted and sad that she moved many to tears in spite of themselves, and wherever she passed, all who met her wept and could not restrain their tears. And he adds that the holy disciples and women who accompanied her mourned even more for her than for their Lord. St. Bonaventure says that her sisters covered her with a mourning cloak. The sisters of Our Lady veiled her as a widow, almost covering her whole face. He also says that passing on her return before the cross still wet with the blood of her Jesus, she was the first to adore it. O holy cross, she then said, I kiss thee, I adore thee, for thou art no longer an infamous gibbet, but a throne of love and an altar of mercy, consecrated by the blood of the divine Lamb, which on thee has been sacrificed for the salvation of the world. She then left the cross and returned home. When there, the afflicted mother cast her eyes round and no longer saw her Jesus, but instead of the sweet presence of her dear son, the remembrance of his beautiful life and cruel death presented itself before her eyes. She remembered how she had pressed that son to her bosom in the crib at Bethlehem. The conversation she had held with him during the many years they had dwelt in the house of Nazareth. She remembered their mutual affection, their loving looks, the words of eternal life which fell from those divine lips, and then the sad scene which she had that day witnessed again presented itself before her. The nails, the thorns, 
the lacerated flesh of her son, those deep wounds, those uncovered bones, that open mouth, those dimmed eyes, all presented themselves before her. Ah, what a night of sorrow was that night for Mary. The afflicted mother, turning to St. John, mournfully said, Ah, John, tell me, where is thy master? She then asked the Magdalene, Daughter, tell me, where is thy beloved? O God, who has taken him from us? Mary wept, and all who were present wept with her. And thou, my soul, weepest not. Ah, turn to Mary, and address her with St. Bonaventure, saying, O my own sweet lady, let me weep. Thou art innocent, I am guilty. Entreat her at least to let thee weep with her. Grant that with thee I may weep. She weeps for love. Do thou weep through sorrow for thy sin. Thus weeping thou mayest have the happy lot of him whom we read in the following example. Example Father Engelgrave relates that a certain religious was so tormented with scruples that he was sometimes almost driven to despair. But as he had always the greatest devotion to Mary of Sorrows, he always had recourse to her in his interior agonies and felt himself consoled whilst meditating on her dolors. Death came, and the devil then tormented him more than ever with scruples and tempted him to despair. When, behold, the compassionate mother, seeing her poor son in such anguish, appeared to him, saying, And thou, my son, why art thou so overcome with sorrow? Why fearest thou so much? Thou who hast so often consoled me by pitying me in my sorrows. But now, she added, Jesus sends me to console thee. Be comforted then, rejoice, and come with me to heaven. On hearing these consoling words, the devout religious, filled with joy and confidence, tranquilly expired. Prayer My afflicted mother, I will not leave thee alone to weep. No, I will accompany thee with my tears. This grace I now ask of thee, obtain that I may always bear in mind and always have a tender devotion towards the passion of Jesus and thy sorrows, that the remainder of my days may thus be spent in weeping over thy sufferings, my own sweet mother, and those of my Redeemer. These sorrows, I trust, will give me the confidence and strength that I shall require at the hour of death, that I may not despair at the sight of the many sins by which I have offended my Lord. They must obtain me pardon, perseverance, and heaven, where I hope to rejoice with thee, and to sing the infinite mercies of my God for all eternity. Thus do I hope, thus may it be. Amen. Amen. Hymns Words of Mary in Sorrow on Mount Calvary All ye who pass along the way, all joyous, where with grief I pine, in pity pause a while and say, Was ever sorrow like to mine? See, hanging here before my eyes, this body bloodless, bruised, and torn, alas, it is my son who dies, 
of love deserving, not of scorn. For know, this weak and dying man is son of him who made the earth and me before the world began. He chose to give him human birth. He is my God, and since that night when first I saw his infant grace, my soul has feasted on the light, the beauty of that heavenly face. For he had chosen me to be the loved companion of his heart, and ah, how that dear company with love transpierced me like a dart. And now, behold, this loving son is dying in a woe so great, the very stones are moved to moan in sorrow at his piteous state. Where'er his failing eyes are bent, a friend to help he seeks in vain. All, all on vengeance are intent, and eager to increase his pain. Eternal Father, God of love, behold thy son, ah, see his woe. Canst thou look down from above, and for thy son no pity show? But no, that father sees his son clothed with the sins of guilty men, and spares not that beloved one, though dying on his cross of pain. My son, my son, could I at least console thee in this hour of death? Could I but lay thee on my breast, and there receive thy parting breath? Alas, no comfort I impart, nay, rather this my vain regret, but rends still more thy loving heart, and makes thy death more bitter yet. Ah, loving souls, love, love that God, who all inflamed with love expires. On you this life he has bestowed. Your love is all that he desires. The second hymn on the same subject by Father Matthew Testa. O ye who know love's conquering power, come watch with me one dismal hour. My heart doth writhe with pain neath Calvary's crimson rain. O pity me, poor wilted flower. I am the mother of the crucified, the Holy Spirit's anguished bride. My son in woes all steeped, his sheaves of sorrows reaped, the Jews in Pilate's hall deride. Did ever burn a mother's love as that lit by this heavenly dove? But, oh, my breaking heart did feel the piercing dart of anguish falling from above. I saw him clambering Calvary's steep with cross and crown of thorns pierced deep, all bound in galling chains, o'ercome by racking pains. With feeble step, I could not weep. O ye with hearts of tender mold, lament with me o'er hearts so cold. Three times he fell to earth, to Jews a source of mirth. They scourged my son by Judas sold. They laid him on his bed of pain, his blood that cruel race did stain. They pierced his hands and feet, that heart with woes replete which often on my breast had lain. Oh, how my heart was wrung to see my dying son on Calvary's tree. My soul I joined to his to suffer, then was bliss. With him to die, I was not free. I lived, but felt the deathly smart of sorrowing love, a breaking heart, my murdered son in pain. Still, still, I see again. O oh, love, my son, and joy impart.
the third hymn, Stabat Mater. At the cross her station keeping Stood the mournful mother weeping Close to Jesus to the last, Though her heart his sorrow sharing, All this bitter anguish bearing, Lo, the piercing sword had passed. Oh, how sad and sore distressed Now was she, that mother blessed Of the sole begotten one, Woe begone with heart's prostration, Mother meek, the bitter passion, Saw she of her glorious son. Who could mark from tears refraining Christ's dear mother uncomplaining In so great a sorrow bowed? Who unmoved behold her anguish Underneath his cross of anguish Mid the fierce unpitying crowd? For his people's sins rejected, she, her Jesus, unprotected, Saw with thorns, with scourges rent, Saw her son from judgment taken, Her beloved in death forsaken, Till his spirit forth he sent. Font of love and holy sorrow, Mother, may my spirit borrow Somewhat of thy woe profound, Unto Christ with pure emotion Raise my contrite heart's devotion, Love to read in every wound. Those five wounds on Jesus smitten, Mother, in my heart be written, Deep as in thine own they be, Thou, thou my Saviour's cross who bearest, Thou thy Son's rebuke who sharest, Let me share them both with thee. In the passion of my Maker Be my sinful soul partaker, Weep till death and weep with thee, Mine with thee be that sad station, there to watch the great salvation wrought upon the atoning tree. Virgin, thou of virgins fairest, may the bitter woe thou bearest make on me impression deep. Thus Christ dying may I carry with him in his passion tarry and his wounds in memory keep. May his wounds transfix me wholly, may his cross and life-blood holy inebriate my heart heart and mind, thus inflamed with pure affection in the virgin son's protection, may I at the judgment find. When in death my limbs are failing, let thy mother's prayer prevailing, lift me, Jesus, to thy throne, to my parting soul be given entrance through the gate of heaven, there confess me for thine own. An indulgence of one hundred days was granted by Pope Innocent the Eleventh to the faithful who say this hymn with devotion in honor of the Mother of Sorrows. This indulgence was confirmed by Pope Pius the Ninth by a rescript June 18, 1876. Part the Fourth The Virtues of the Most Blessed Virgin Mary St. Augustine says, that to obtain with more certainty and in greater abundance the favor of the saints, we must imitate them. For when they see us practice their virtues, they are more excited to pray for us. The Queen of Saints and our principal advocate, Mary, has no sooner delivered a soul from Lucifer's grasp and united it to God than she desires that it should begin to imitate her. Otherwise, she cannot enrich it with the graces that she would wish seeing it so opposed to her con in conduct. Therefore, Mary calls those blessed who with diligence imitate her life. Now, therefore, children, 
hear me. Blessed are they that keep my ways. Whosoever loves resembles the person loved or endeavors to become like that person, according to the well-known proverb, love either finds or makes its like. Hence, St. Sophronius exhorts us to endeavor to imitate Mary, if we love her, because this is the greatest act of homage that we can offer her. My beloved children, the saint says, serve Mary whom you love, for you then truly love her if you endeavor to imitate her whom you love. Richard of St. Lawrence says that those who are and can call themselves true children of Mary who strive to imitate her life. Let the child then, concludes St. Bernard, endeavor to imitate his mother if he desires her favor. For Mary, seeing herself treated as a mother, will treat him as her child. Although there is little recorded in the Gospels of Mary's virtues in detail, yet when we learn from them that she was full of grace, this alone gives us to understand that she possessed all virtues in a heroic degree. So much so, says St. Thomas, that whereas other saints excelled each in some particular virtue, the one in chastity, another in humility, another in mercy, the Blessed Virgin excelled in all, and is given as a model of all. St. Ambrose says, Mary was such that her life alone was a model for all. And then he concludes in the following words, Let the virginity and life of Mary be to you as a faithful image in which the form of virtue is resplendent. Thence learn how to live, what to correct and what to avoid, what to retain. Humility being the foundation of all virtues, as the Holy Fathers teach, let us in the first place consider how great was the humility of the Mother of God. 1. The Humility of Mary Humility, says St. Bernard, is the foundation and guardian of virtues, and with reason, for without it no other virtue can exist in a soul. Should she possess all virtues, all will depart when humility is gone. But on the other hand, as St. Francis de Sales wrote to St. Jane Francis de Chantel, God so loves humility that whenever he sees it, he is immediately drawn thither. This beautiful and so necessary virtue was unknown in the world, but the Son of God himself came on earth to teach it by his own example and willed that in that virtue in particular we should endeavor to imitate him. Learn of me, because I am meek and humble of heart. Mary, being the first and most perfect disciple of Jesus Christ in the practice of all virtues, was the first also in that of humility, and by it merited to be exalted above all creatures. It was revealed to St. Matilda that the first virtue in which the Blessed Mother particularly exercised herself from her very childhood was that of humility. The first effect of humility of heart is a lowly opinion of ourselves. Mary had always so humble an opinion of herself that, as it was revealed to the same Saint Matilda, although she saw herself enriched with greater graces than all creatures, she never preferred herself to anyone. 
the abbot Rupert, explaining the passage of the sacred canticles, Thou hast wounded my heart, my sister, my spouse, with one hair of thy neck, says that the, hu the humble opinion which Mary had of herself was precisely that hair of the spouse's neck with which she wounded the heart of God. Not indeed that Mary considered herself a sinner, for humility is truth, as St. Teresa remarks, and Mary knew that she had never offended God. Nor was it that she did not acknowledge that she had received greater graces from God than all other creatures. For an humble heart always acknowledges the special favors of the Lord to humble herself the more. But the Divine Mother, by the greater light wherewith she knew the infinite greatness and goodness of God, also knew her own nothingness, and therefore, more than all others, humbled herself, saying with the sacred spouse, Do not consider that I am brown, because the sun hath altered my color. That is, as St. Bernard explains it, when I approach him I find myself black. Yes, says St. Bernardine, for the Blessed Virgin had always the majesty of God and her own nothingness present to her mind. As a beggar, when clothed with a rich garment, which has been bestowed upon her, does not pride herself on it in the presence of the giver, but is rather humbled, being reminded thereby of her own poverty, so also the more Mary saw herself enriched, the more did she humble herself, remembering that all was God's gift. Whence she herself told St. Elizabeth of Hungary that she might rest assured that she looked upon herself as the most vile and unworthy of God's grace. Therefore, St. Bernadine says that after the Son of God, no creature in the world was so exalted as Mary, because no creature in the world ever humbled itself so much as she did. We will continue on the next tape. We now continue with The Glories of Mary by St. Alphonsus de Liguri. Moreover, it is an act of humility to conceal heavenly gifts. Mary wished to conceal from St. Joseph the great favor whereby she had become the mother of God, although it seemed necessary to make it known to him, if only to remove from the mind of her poor spouse any suspicions as to her virtue which he might have entertained on seeing her pregnant or at least the perplexity in which it indeed threw him. For St. Joseph, on the one hand unwilling to doubt Mary's chastity, and on the other ignorant of the mystery, was minded to put her away privately. This he would have done had not the angel revealed to him that his spite by the operation of the Holy Ghost. Again, a soul that is truly humble refuses her own praise, and should praises be bestowed upon her, she refers them all to God. Behold, Mary is disturbed at hearing herself praised by St. Gabriel, and when St. Elizabeth said, Blessed art thou among women, and whence is this to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Blessed art thou that hast believed. Mary referred all to God, and answered in that humble canticle, My soul doth magnify the Lord, as if she had said, Thou dost praise me, Elizabeth, but praise the Lord, to whom alone honor is due. 
Thou wonderest that I should come to thee, and I wonder at the divine goodness in which alone my spirit exalts, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Saviour. Thou praisest me because I have believed. I praise my God because he hath been pleased to exalt my nothingness, because he hath regarded the humility of his handmaid. Hence Mary said to St. Bridget, I humbled myself so much, and thereby merited so great a grace, because I thought and knew that of myself I possessed nothing. For this same reason I did not desire to be praised. I only desired that praises should be given to the Creator and Giver of all. Wherefore, an ancient author, speaking of the humility of Mary, says, O truly blessed humility, which hath given God to men, opened heaven, and delivered souls from hell. It is also a part of humility to serve others. Mary did not refuse to go and serve Elizabeth for three months. Hence St. Bernard says, Elizabeth wondered that Mary should have come to visit her. But that which is still most admirable is that she came not to be ministered to, but to minister. Those who are humble are retiring, and choose the last places. And therefore Mary, remarks St. Bernard, when her son was preaching in a house, as it is related by St. Matthew, wishing to speak to him, would not of her own accord enter, but remained outside, and did not avail herself of her maternal authority to interrupt him. For the same reason, also, when she was with the apostles waiting the coming of the Holy Ghost, she took the lowest place, as St. Luke relates. All these were persevering with one mind in prayer, with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus. Not that St. Luke was ignorant of the Divine Mother's merits, on account of which she should have named her first place, but because she had taken the last place amongst the apostles and women and therefore he described them all, as an author remarks, in the order in which they were. Hence St. Bernard says, Justly has the last become the first, who, being the first of all, became the last. In fine, those who are humble love to be contemned. Therefore we do not read that Mary showed herself in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, when her son was received by the people with so much honor. But on the other hand, at the death of her son, she did not shrink from appearing on Calvary, through fear of the dishonor which would accrue to her when it was known that she was the mother of him who was condemned to die in infamous death as a criminal. Therefore she said to St. Bridget, What is more humbling than to be called a fool, to be in want of all things, and to believe oneself the most unworthy of all? Such, O oh daughter, was my humility. This was my joy. This was all my desire with which I thought how to please my son alone. The venerable sister Paula of Foligno was given to understand in an ecstasy how great was the humility of our blessed lady, and giving an account of it to her confessor, she was so filled with astonishment at its greatness that she could only exclaim, Oh, the humility of the Blessed Virgin! Oh, Father, the humility of the Blessed Virgin! How great was the humility of the Blessed Virgin! In the world there is no such thing as humility, not even in its lowest degree when you see the humility of Mary. On another occasion our Lord showed St. Bridget two ladies, 
the one was all pomp and vanity. She, he said, is pride. But the other one whom thou seest with her head bent down, courteous towards all, having God alone in her mind, and considering herself as no one, is humility. Her name is Mary. Hereby God was pleased to make known to us that the humility of this blessed mother was such that she was humility itself. There can be no doubt, as St. Gregory of Nyssa remarks, that of all virtues there is perhaps none the practice of which is more difficult to our nature, corrupted as it is by sin, than that of humility. But there is no escape. We can never be true children of Mary if we are not humble. If, says St. Bernard, thou canst not imitate the virginity of this humble virgin, imitate her humility. She detests the proud and invites only the humble to come to her. Whosoever is a little one, let him come to me. Mary, says Richard of St. Lawrence, protects us under the mantle of humility. The mother of God herself explained to St. Bridget what her mantle was, saying, Come, my daughter, and hide thyself under my mantle. This mantle is my humility. She then added that the consideration of her humility was a good mantle with which we could warm ourselves, but that as a mantle only renders this service to those who wear it, not in thought, but in deed, so also would her humility be of no avail except to those who endeavored to imitate it. She then concluded in these words, Therefore, my daughter, clothe thyself with this humility. Oh, how dear are humble souls to Mary, says St. Bernard. This blessed virgin recognizes and loves those who love her, and is near to all who call upon her, and especially to those whom she, like, she sees like unto herself in chastity and humility. Hence the saint exhorts all who love Mary to be humble. Emulate this virtue of Mary if thou lovest her. Marinus, or Martin de Alberto, of the Society of Jesus, used to sweep the house and collect the filth through love for the Blessed Virgin. The Divine Mother one day appeared to him, as Father Nirenberg relates in his life, and thanking him, as it were, said, Oh, how pleasing to me is this humble action done for my love! Then, O oh my Queen, I can never be really thy child unless I am humble. But dost thou not see that my sins, after having rendered me ungrateful to my Lord, have also made me proud? O oh, my mother, do thou supply a remedy. By the merit of thy humility obtain that I may be truly humble, and thus become thy child. Amen. Part 2 Mary's Charity Towards God St. Anselm says that wherever there is the greatest purity, there is also the greatest charity. The more a heart is pure and empty of itself, the greater is the fullness of its love towards God. The Most Holy Mary, because she was all humility and had nothing of self in her, was filled with divine love, so that her love towards God surpassed that of all men and angels, as St. Bernadine writes. Therefore, St. Francis de Sales with reason called her the Queen of Love. 
God has indeed given men the precept to love him with their whole heart. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with thy whole heart. But St. Thomas declares, This commandment will be fully and perfectly fulfilled by men only in heaven and not on earth, where it is only fulfilled imperfectly. On this subject, Blessed Albert the Great remarks that, in a certain sense, it would have been unbecoming had God given a precept that was never to have been perfectly fulfilled. But this would have been the case had it not the Divine Mother perfectly fulfilled it. The saint says, Either someone fulfilled this precept, or no one. If anyone, it must have been the most blessed virgin. Richard of St. Victor confirms this opinion, saying, The mother of our Emmanuel practiced virtues in their very highest perfection. Who has ever fulfilled as she did that first commandment, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with thy whole heart? In her divine love was so ardent that no defect of any kind could have access to her. Divine love, says St. Bernard, so penetrated and filled the soul of Mary that no part of her was left untouched, so that she loved with her whole heart, with her whole soul, with her whole strength, and was full of grace. Therefore Mary could well say, My beloved has given himself all to me, and I have given myself all to him. My beloved to me, and I to him. Ah, well might even the seraphim, says Richard, have descended from heaven to learn, in the heart of Mary, how to love God. God, who is love, came on earth to enkindle in the hearts of all the flame of his divine love. But in no heart did he enkindle so much as in that of his mother, for her heart was entirely pure from all earthly affections, and fully prepared to burn with this blessed flame. Thus, St. Sophronius says that the divine love so inflamed her that nothing earthly could enter her affections. She was always burning with this heavenly flame, and so to say, inebriated with it. Hence, the heart of Mary became all fire and flames, as we read of her in the sacred canticles. The lamps thereof are fire and flame, fire burning within through love, as St. Anselm explains it and flames shining without by the example she gave to all in the practice of virtues. When Mary, then, was in this world and bore Jesus in her arms, she could well be called fire-carrying fire, and with far more reason than a woman spoken of by Hippocrates, who was thus called because she carried fire in her hand. Yes, for St. Ildefonsus said that the Holy Ghost heated inflamed and melted Mary with love, as fire does iron, so that the flame of this Holy Spirit was seen, and nothing was felt but the fire of the love of God. St. Thomas of Villanova says that the bush seen by Moses, which burnt without being consumed, was a real symbol of Mary's heart. Therefore, with reason, says St. Bernard, was she seen by St. John clothed with the sun, and there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun. For, continues the saint, she was so closely united to God by love, and penetrated so deeply the abyss of divine wisdom, 
that without a personal union with God, it would seem impossible for a creature to have a closer union with him. Hence St. Bernardine of Siena asserts that the Most Holy Virgin was never tempted by hell. For, he says, as flies are driven away by a great fire, so were the evil spirits driven away by her ardent love, so much so that they did not even dare approach her. Richard of St. Victor also says that the Blessed Virgin was terrible to the princes of darkness, so that they did not presume to attempt or approach her, for the fire of her charity deterred them. Mary herself revealed to St. Bridget that in this world she never had any thought, desire, or joy, but in God and for God. I thought, she said, of nothing but God. Nothing pleased me but God. So that her blessed soul, being in the almost continual contemplation of God whilst on earth, the acts of love which she formed were innumerable. As Father Suarez writes, the acts of perfect charity formed by the Blessed Virgin in this life were without number, for nearly the whole of her life was spent in contemplation, and in that state she constantly repeated acts of love. But a remark of Bernadine de Bustis pleases me still more. He says that Mary did not so much repeat acts of love as other saints do, but that her whole life was one continued act of it. For, by a special privilege, she always actually loved God. As a royal eagle, she always kept her eyes fixed on the divine Son of Justice. That, as St. Peter Demeton says, the duties of active life did not prevent her from loving, and love did not prevent her from attending to those duties. Therefore, St. Germanus says that the altar of propitiation, on which the fire was never extinguished day or night, was a type of Mary. Nor was sleep an obstacle to Mary's love for God, since, as St. Augustine asserts, the dreams, when sleeping, of our first parents in their state of innocence were as happy as their lives when waking. And if such a privilege was granted to them, it certainly cannot be denied that it was also granted to the Divine Mother, as Suarez, the Abbot Rupert, and St. Bernadine fully admit. St. Ambrose is also of this opinion, for speaking of Mary, he says, While her body rested, her soul watched, verifying in herself the words of the wise man, Her lamp shall not be put out in the night. Yes, for while her blessed body took its necessary repose and gentle sleep, her soul, says St. Bernadine, freely tended towards God so much so that she was then wrapped in more perfect contemplation than any other person ever was when awake. Therefore could she well say with the spouse in the canticles, I weep, and my heart watcheth. As happy in sleep as waking, says Suarez. In fine, St. Bernadine asserts that as long as Mary lived in this world, she was continually loving God. The mind of the Blessed Virgin was always wrapped in the ardor of love. The saint, moreover, adds that she never did anything that the divine wisdom did not show her to be pleasing to him, and that she loved God as much as she thought he was to be loved by her. Indeed, according to Blessed Albert the Great, 
we can well say that Mary was filled with so great charity that greater was not possible in any pure creature on earth. Hence St. Thomas of Villanova affirms that by her ardent charity the Blessed Virgin became so beautiful and so enamored of her God that, captivated as it were by her love, he descended into her womb and became man. Wherefore St. Bernardine exclaims, Behold the power of the Virgin Mother. She wounded and took captive the heart of God. But since Mary loves God so much, there can be nothing that she so much requires of her clients as that they should also love him to their utmost. This precisely she told one day to blessed Angela de Filongno after communion, saying, Angela, be thou blessed by my son and endeavor to love him as much as thou canst. She also said to St. Bridget, Daughter, if thou desirest to bind me to thee, love my son. Mary desires nothing more than to see her beloved, who is God, loved. Novarinus asks why the Blessed Virgin, with the spouse in the canticles, begged the angels to make the great love she bore him known to our Lord, saying, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him that I languish with love. Did not God know how much she loved him? Why did she seek to show the wound to her beloved, since he it was who had inflicted it? The same author answers that the Divine Mother thereby wished to make her love known to us, not to God, that she, as she herself was wounded, so might she be enabled to wound us with divine love. And because Mary was all on fire with the love of God, all who love and approach her are inflamed by her with this same love, for she renders them like unto herself. For this reason St. Catherine of Siena called Mary the bearer of fire, the bearer of the flames of divine love. If we also desire to burn with these blessed flames, let us endeavor always to draw nearer to our mother by our prayers and the affections of our souls. Ah, Mary, thou queen of love, of all creatures the most amiable, the most beloved, and the most loving, as St. Francis de Sales addressed thee, my own sweet mother, thou wast always and in all things inflamed with love towards God. Deign then to bestow at least a spark of it in me, Thou didst pray thy son for the spouses whose wine had failed. They have no wine. And wilt thou not pray for us, in whom the love of God, whom we are under such obligations to love, is wanting? Say also, they have no love, and obtain us this love. This is the only grace for which we ask. O mother, by the love thou bearest to Jesus, graciously hear and pray for us. Amen. Part 3. Mary's Charity Towards Her Neighbor Love towards God and love towards our neighbor are commanded by the same precept. And this commandment we have from God, that he who loveth God love also his brother. St. Thomas says that the reason for this is that he who loves God loves all that God loves. St. Catherine of Genoa one day said, Lord, thou willest that I should love my neighbor, 
and I can love none but thee. God answered her in these words, All who love me love what I love. But as there never was and never will be anyone who loved God as much as Mary loved him, so there never was and never will be anyone who loved her neighbor as much as she did. Father Cornelius Alipide, on these words of the canticles, King Solomon hath made him a litter of the wood of Libanus, in the midst he covered with charity for the daughters of Jerusalem. Says that this litter was Mary's womb, in which the incarnate word dwelt, filling it with charity for the daughters of Jerusalem. For Christ, who is love itself, inspired the Blessed Virgin with charity in its highest degree, that she might succor all who had recourse to her. So great was Mary's charity when on earth that she succored the needy without even being asked, as was the case at the marriage feast at Cana, when she told her son that families distress, they have no wine, and asked him to work a miracle. Oh, with what speed did she fly when there was question of relieving her neighbor, when she went to the house of Elizabeth to fulfill an office of charity, she went into the hill country with haste. She could not, however, more fully display the greatness of her charity than she did in the offering which she made of her son to death for our salvation. On this subject, St. Bonaventure says, Mary so loved the world as to give her only begotten son. Hence St. Anselm exclaims, O blessed amongst women, thy purity surpasses that of the angels, and thy compassion that of the saints. Nor has this love of Mary for us, says St. Bonaventure, diminished now that she is in heaven, but it has increased, for now she better sees the miseries of men. And therefore the saint goes on to say, Great was the mercy of Mary towards the wretched when she was still in exile on earth, but far greater is it now that she reigns in heaven. St. Agnes assured St. Bridget that there was no one who prayed without receiving grace through the charity of the Blessed Virgin. Unfortunate indeed should we be did not Mary intercede for us. Jesus himself, addressing the same saint, said, Were it not for the prayers of my mother, there would be no hope of mercy. Blessed is he, says the Divine Mother, who listens to my instructions, pays attention to my charity, and in imitation of me exercises it himself towards others. Blessed is the man that heareth me, and watcheth daily at my gates, and waiteth at the posts of my doors. St. Gregory Nancyanzen assures us that there is nothing by which we can with greater certainty gain the affection of Mary than by charity towards our neighbor. Therefore, as God exhorts us, saying, Be ye merciful, as your Father also was merciful, so also does Mary seem to say to all her children, Be ye merciful, as your mother also is merciful. It is certain that our charity towards our neighbor will be the measure of that which God and Mary will show us. Give, and it shall be given to you. For with the same measure that you shall meet withal, it shall be measured to you again. St. Methodius used to say, Give to the poor, and receive paradise. For the Apostle writes that charity towards our neighbor renders us happy both in this world and in the next. But piety is profitable to all things, 
having promise of the life that it now is, and of that which is to come. St. John Chrysostom, on these words of Proverbs, He that hath Mary on the poor lendeth to the Lord, makes a remark to the same effect, saying, He who assists the needy makes God his debtor. O Mother of Mercy, Thou art full of charity for all. Forget not my miseries. Thou seest them full well. Recommend me to God who denies thee nothing. Obtain for me the grace to imitate thee in holy charity, as well towards God as towards my neighbor. Amen. Part 4. Mary's Faith As the Blessed Virgin is the mother of holy love and hope, so also is she the mother of faith. I am the mother of fair love, and of fear, and of knowledge, and of holy hope. And with reason she is so, says St. Irenaeus, for the evil done by Eve's incredulity was remedied by Mary's faith. This is confirmed by Tertullian, who says that because Eve, contrary to the assurance she had received from God, believed the serpent, she brought death into the world. But our queen, because she believed the angel when he said that she, remaining a virgin, would become the mother of God, brought salvation into the world. For St. Augustine says that when Mary consented to the incarnation of the eternal word, by means of her faith she opened heaven to men. Richard, on the words of St. Paul, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the believing wife, also says that Mary is the believing woman by whose faith the unbelieving Adam and all his posterity are saved. Hence, on account of her faith, Elizabeth called the Holy Virgin blessed. Blessed art thou that hast believed, because those things shall be accomplished in thee that were spoken by the Lord. And St. Augustine adds that Mary was rather blessed by receiving the faith of Christ than by conceiving the flesh of Christ. Father Suarez says that the Most Holy Virgin had more faith than all men and angels. She saw her son in the crib of Bethlehem, and believed him the creator of the world. She saw him fly from Herod, and yet believed him the king of kings. She saw him born, and believed him eternal. She saw him poor and in need of food, and believed him the Lord of the universe. She saw him lying on straw, and believed him omnipotent. She observed he did not speak, and she believed him infinite wisdom. She heard him weep, and believed him the joy of paradise. In fine, she saw him in death, despised and crucified, and although faith wavered in others, Mary remained firm and in the belief that he was God. On these words of the Gospel, there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother. St. Antoninus says, Mary stood, supported by her faith, which she retained firm in the divinity of Christ. And for this reason it is, the saint adds, that the office of Tembray, only one candle is left lighted. St. Leo, on this subject, applies to our Blessed Lady the words of Proverbs, Her lamp shall not be put out in the night. And on the words of Isaiah, I have trodden the winepress alone. St. Thomas remarks that the prophet says, A man, on account of the Blessed Virgin, in whom faith never failed. 
Hence, Blessed Albert the Great assures us that Mary then exercised perfect faith, for even when the disciples were doubting, she did not doubt. Therefore, Mary merited by her great faith to become the light of all the faithful, as St. Methodius calls her, and the queen of the true faith, as she is called by St. Cyril of Alexandria. The Holy Church herself attributes to the merits of Mary's faith the destruction of all heresies. Rejoice, O Holy Virgin, for thou alone hast destroyed all heresies throughout the world. St. Thomas of Villanova, explaining the words of the Holy Ghost, Thou hast wounded my heart, my sister, my spouse, with one of thy eyes, says that these eyes denoted Mary's faith, by which she greatly pleased the Son of God. Here St. Ildefonsus exhorts us to imitate Mary's faith. But how can we do so? Faith, at the same time that it is a gift, is also a virtue. It is a gift of God, inasmuch as it is a light infused by Him into our souls, and a virtue, inasmuch as the soul has to exercise itself in the practice of it. Hence, faith is not only to be the rule of our belief, but also that of our actions. Therefore, St. Gregory says, He truly believes who puts what he believes into practice. And St. Augustine, Thou sayest, I believe. Do what thou sayest, and it is faith. This is to have a lively faith, to live according to our belief. My just man liveth by faith. Thus did the Blessed Virgin live very differently from those who do not live in accordance with what they believe, and whose faith is dead, as St. James declares, Faith without works is dead. Diogenes sought for a man on earth, but God, amongst the many faithful, seems to seek for a Christian. For few there are who have good works. The greater part have only the name of Christian. To such as these should be applied the words once addressed by Alexander to a cowardly soldier who was also named Alexander. Either change thy name or change thy conduct. But as Father Avila used to say, it would be better to shut up these poor creatures as madmen, believing as they do that an eternity of happiness is prepared for those who lead good lives, and an eternity of misery for those who lead bad ones, and who yet live as if they believed nothing. St. Augustine therefore exhorts us to see things with the eyes of Christians, that is to say, with eyes which look at all in the light of faith. For, as St. Teresa often said, all sins come from a want of faith. Let us therefore entreat the Most Holy Virgin, by the merit of her faith, to obtain us a lively faith. O Lady, increase our faith. Part 5. Mary's Hope Hope takes rise in faith, for God enlightens us by faith to know His goodness and the promises He has made, that by this knowledge we may rise by hope to the desire of possessing Him. Mary, then, having had the virtue of faith in its highest degree, had also hope in the same degree of excellence, and this made her say with David, But it is good for me to adhere to my God, to put my hope in the Lord God. Mary, indeed, was that faithful spouse of the Holy Ghost, of whom it was said, 
Who is this that cometh up from the desert, flowing with delights, leaning on her beloved? For she was always perfectly detached from earthly affection, looking upon the world as a desert, and therefore in no way relying either on creatures or on her own merits, but relying only on divine grace, in which was all her confidence. She always advanced in the love of God. Thus Algrino said of her, She ascended from the desert, that is, from the world, which she so fully renounced, and so truly considered as a desert, that she turned all her affections from it. She leaned upon her beloved, for she trusted not in her own merits, but in his graces who bestows graces. The Most Holy Virgin gave a clear indication of the greatness of her confidence in God. In the first place, when she saw the anxiety of her holy spouse, St. Joseph, unable to account for her wonderful pregnancy, he was troubled at the thought of leaving her. But Joseph minded to put her away privately. It appeared then necessary, as we have elsewhere remarked, that she should discover the hidden mystery to St. Joseph. But no, she would not herself manifest the grace she had received. She thought it better to abandon herself to divine providence in the full confidence that God himself would defend her innocence and reputation. This is precisely what Cornelius Alapide says in his commentary on the words of the gospel quoted above. The Blessed Virgin was unwilling to reveal this secret to Joseph, lest she might seem to boast of her gifts. She therefore resigned herself to the care of God, in the fullest confidence that he would guard her innocence and reputation. Mary again showed her confidence in God when she knew that the time for the birth of our Lord approached and was yet driven even from the lodgings of the poor in Bethlehem and obliged to bring forth in a stable. And she laid him in a manger because there was no room for him in the inn. She did not then let drop a single word of complaint but abandoning herself to God, she trusted that he would there assist her. The Divine Mother also showed how great was her confidence in Divine Providence when she received notice from St. Joseph that they must fly into Egypt. On that very night she undertook so long a journey to a strange and unknown country without provisions, without money, accompanied only by her infant Jesus and her poor spouse who arose and took the child and his mother by night, and retired into Egypt. But much more did she show her confidence when she asked her son for wine at the marriage feast at Cana, for when she had said, They have no wine, Jesus answered her, Woman, what is it to thee and to me? My hour is not yet come. After this answer, which seemed an evident refusal, her confidence in the divine goodness was such that she desired the servants to do whatever her son told them, for the favor was certain to be granted. Whatsoever he shall say to you, do ye. It indeed was so. Jesus Christ ordered the vessels to be filled with water and changed it into wine. Let us then learn from Mary to have that confidence in God which we ought always to have, but principally in the great affair of our eternal salvation an affair in which it is true that we must cooperate. Yet it is from God alone that we must hope for the grace necessary to obtain it. We must distrust our own strength and say with the Apostle, I can do all things in him who strengtheneth me.
Ah, my most holy lady, the Ecclesiasticus tells me that thou art the mother of holy hope, and the holy church that thou art our hope. For what other hope, then, need I seek? Thou, after Jesus, art all my hope. Thus did St. Bernard call thee, thus will I also call thee. Thou art the whole ground of my hope, and with St. Bonaventure I will repeat again and again, O salvation of all who call upon thee, save me. Part 6. Mary's Chastity Since the fall of Adam, the senses being rebellious to reason, chastity is of all the virtues the one that is most difficult to practice. St. Augustine says, Of all the combats in which we are engaged, the most severe are those of chastity. Its battles are of daily occurrence, but victory is rare. May God be ever praised, however, who in Mary has given us a great example of this virtue. With reason, says Blessed Albertus Magnus, is Mary called the Virgin of Virgins, for she, without the counsel or example of others, was the first who offered her virginity to God. Thus did she bring all virgins who imitate her to God, as David had already foretold. After her shall virgins be brought into the temple of the king. Without counsel and without example. Yes, for St. Bernard says, O virgin, who taught thee to please God by virginity and to lead an angel's life on earth? Ah, replies St. Sophronius, God chose this most pure virgin for his mother, that she might be an example of chastity to all. Therefore does St. Ambrose call Mary the standard-bearer of virginity. By reason of her purity, the Blessed Virgin was also declared by the Holy Ghost to be beautiful as the turtle-dove. Mary, says Aponius, was a most pure turtle-dove. For the same reason, she was also called a lily. As the lily among the thorns, so is my love among the daughters. On this passage, Dennis the Carthusian remarks that Mary was compared to a lily amongst thorns, because all other virgins were thorns, either to themselves or to others, but that the Blessed Virgin was so neither to herself nor to others. For she inspired all who looked at her with chaste thoughts. This is confirmed by St. Thomas, who says, that the beauty of the Blessed Virgin was an incentive to chastity in all who beheld her. St. Jerome declared that it was his opinion that St. Joseph remained a virgin by living with Mary, for writing against the heretic Helvidius, who denied Mary's virginity, he says, Thou sayest that Mary did not remain a virgin. I say that not only she remained a virgin, but even that Joseph preserved his virginity through Mary. St. Gregory of Nyssa says that so much did the Blessed Virgin love this virtue that to preserve it she would have been willing to renounce even the dignity of Mother of God. This we may conclude from her answer to the Archangel. How shall this be done? Because I know not man. And from the words she afterwards added, Be it done to me according to thy word signifying that she gave her consent on the condition that as the angel had assured her, she should become a mother only by the overshadowing of the Holy Ghost. St. Ambrose says that 
whoever has preserved chastity is an angel, and that he who has lost it is a devil. Our Lord assures us that those who are chaste become angels. They shall be as the angels of God in heaven. But the impure become as devils, hateful in the sight of God. St. Remitius used to say that the greater part of adults are lost by this vice. Seldom, as we have already said with St. Augustine, is a victory gained over this vice. But why? It is because the means by which it may be gained are seldom made use of. These means are three, according to Bellarmine and the masters of a spiritual life. Fasting, the avoidance of dangerous occasions, and prayer. 1. By fasting it is to be understood especially mortification of the eyes and of the appetite. Although, Although our Blessed Lady was full of divine grace, yet she was so mortified in her eyes that, according to St. Epiphanius and St. John Damascene, she always kept them cast down and never fixed them on anyone. And they say that from her very childhood her modesty was such that it filled everyone who saw her with astonishment. Hence, St. Luke remarks that in going to visit St. Elizabeth, she went with haste, that she might be less seen in public. Philibert relates that as to her food, it was revealed to a hermit named Felix that when a baby, she only took milk once a day. St. Gregory of Tours affirms that throughout her life she fasted, and St. Bonaventure adds that Mary would never have found so much grace had she not been most moderate in her food for grace and gluttony cannot subsist together. In fine, Mary was mortified in all, so that of her it was said, My hands dropped with myrrh. The glories of Mary will continue on the second side of the tape. We now continue with the glories of Mary by St. Alphonsus de Liguri. 2. The second means is to fly the occasions of sin. He that is aware of the snares shall be secure. Hence St. Philip Neri says that in the war of the senses cowards conquer, that is to say, those who fly from dangerous occasions. Mary fled as much as possible from the sight of men. And therefore St. Luke remarks that in going to visit St. Elizabeth, she went with haste into the hill country. An author observes that the Blessed Virgin left St. Elizabeth before St. John was born, as we learn from the, time, from the same gospel where it is said that Mary abode with her about three months, and she returned to her own house. Now Elizabeth's full time of being delivered was come, and she brought forth a son. And why did she not wait for this event? It was that she might avoid the conversations and visits which would accompany it. 3. The third means is prayer. And, and as I knew, said the wise man, that I could not otherwise be continent except God gave it, I went to the Lord and besought him. The Blessed Virgin revealed to St. Elizabeth of Hungary that she acquired no virtue without effort and continual prayer. St. John Damascene says that Mary is pure and a lover of purity. 
hence she cannot endure those who are unchaste. But whoever has recourse to her will certainly be delivered from this vice, if he only pronounces her name with confidence. The venerable John de Avela used to say that many have conquered impure temptations by only having devotion to her immaculate conception. O Mary, O most pure dove, how many are now in hell on account of this vice? Sovereign Lady, Obtain us the grace always to have recourse to thee in our temptations, and always to invoke thee, saying, Mary, Mary, help us. Amen. Part 7. Mary's Poverty Our most loving Redeemer, that we might learn from him to despise the things of the world, was pleased to be poor on earth. Being rich, says St. Paul, he becameth poor for your sake, that through his poverty you might be rich. Therefore doth Jesus Christ exhort each one who desires to be his disciple, If thou wilt be perfect, go, sell what thou hast, and give to the poor, and come, follow me. Behold Mary, his most perfect disciple, who indeed imitated his example. Father Canisius proves that Mary could have lived in comfort on the property she inherited from her parents, but she preferred to remain poor, and reserving only a small portion for herself, distributed the rest in alms to the temple and to the poor. Many authors are of the opinion that Mary even made a vow of poverty, and we know that she herself said to St. Bridget, From the beginning I vowed in my own heart that I would never possess anything on earth. The gifts received from the Holy Magi cannot certainly have been of small value, but we are assured by St. Bernard that she distributed them to the poor through the hands of St. Joseph. That the Divine Mother immediately disposed of these gifts is also evident from the fact that at her purification in the temple she did not offer a lamb, which was the offering prescribed in Leviticus for those who could afford it. For a son she shall bring out forth a lamb. But she offered two turtle doves, or two pigeons, which was the oblation prescribed for the poor, and to offer a sacrifice, according as it was written in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves, or two young pigeons. Mary herself said to St. Bridget, All that I could get I gave to the poor, and only reserved a little food and clothing for myself. Out of love for poverty, she did not disdain to marry St. Joseph, who was only a poor carpenter, and afterwards to maintain herself by the work of her hands, spinning or sewing, as we are assured by St. Bonaventure. The angel, speaking of Mary, told St. Bridget that worldly riches were of no more value in her eyes than dirt. In a word, she always lived poor, and she died poor, for at her death we do not know that she left anything but two poor gowns to two women who had served her during her life, as it is recorded by Metaphrastes and Nisiphorus. St. Philip Neri used to say that he who loves the things of the world will never become a saint. We may add what St. Teresa said on the same subject, that it justly follows that he who runs after perishable things should also himself be lost. But on the other hand, she adds that the 
Virtue of poverty is a treasure which comprises in itself all other treasures. She says the virtue of poverty, for, as St. Bernard remarks, this virtue does not consist only in being poor, but in loving poverty. Therefore did Jesus Christ say, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They are blessed because they desire nothing but God, and in God they find every good. In poverty they find their paradise on earth, as St. Francis did when he exclaimed, My God in my all. Let us, then, as St. Augustine exhorts us, love that one good in which all good things are found, and address our Lord in the words of St. Ignatius, Give me only thy love with thy grace, and I am rich enough. When we have to suffer from poverty, let us console ourselves, says St. Bonaventure, with the thought that Jesus and his mother were also poor like ourselves. Ah, my most holy mother, Thou hadst indeed reason to say that in God was thy joy, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Saviour. For in this world thou didst desire and love no other good but God. Draw me after thee. O lady, detach me from the world, that I may love him alone, who alone deserves to be loved. Amen. Part 8. Mary's Obedience when the angel Gabriel announced to Mary God's great designs upon her, she, through love for obedience, would only call herself a handmaid. Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Yes, says St. Thomas of Villanova, for this faithful handmaid never, in either thought or word or deed, contradicted the Most High, but entirely despoiled of her own will, she lived always and in all things obedient to that of God. She herself declared that God was pleased with her obedience when she said, He hath regarded the humility of his handmaid. For in prompt obedience it is that the humility of a servant, properly speaking, consists. St. Irenaeus says that by her obedience the Divine Mother repaired the evil done by Eve's disobedience. As Eve, by her disobedience, caused her own death and that of the whole human race, so did the Virgin Mary, by her obedience, become the cause of her own salvation and that of all mankind. Mary's obedience was much more perfect than that of all the other saints, since all men, on account of original sin, are prone to evil and find it difficult to do good. But not so the Blessed Virgin. St. Bernadine writes that because Mary was free from original sin, she found no obstacle in obeying God. She was like a wheel which was easily turned by every inspiration of the Holy Ghost. Hence, continues the same saint, her only object in this world was to keep her eyes constantly fixed on God, to discover His will, and, when she had found out what He required, to perform it. Of her was said, My soul melted when he spoke. That is, as Richard explains it, My soul was metal, liquefied by the fire of love, ready to be molded into any form according to the divine will. Mary well proved how ready she was to obey in all things. In the first place, when, to please God, she obeyed even the Roman emperor, 
and undertook the long journey of at least seventy miles to Bethlehem in the winter when she was pregnant and in such poverty that she had to give birth to her son in a stable. She showed equal obedience in undertaking on the very same night on which she had notice of it from St. Joseph the longer and more difficult journey into Egypt. Here Silveria asks why the command to fly into Egypt was given to St. Joseph rather than to the Blessed Virgin, who was to suffer the most from it. And he answers that it was that Mary might not be deprived of an occasion in which to perform an act of obedience, for which she was always most ready. But above all, she showed her heroic obedience when, to obey the divine will, she offered her son to death and this with such constancy as St. Anselm and St. Antoninus say, that had executioners been wanting, she would have been ready herself to have crucified him. Hence, Venerable Bede, explaining our Lord's answer to the woman spoken of in the Gospel, who exclaimed, Blessed is the womb that bore thee, yea, rather, blessed are they who hear the word of God and keep it, says that Mary was indeed blessed in becoming the mother of God but that she was much more so in always loving and obeying the divine will. For this reason, all who love obedience are highly pleasing to the Blessed Virgin. She once appeared to a Franciscan friar named Accorso in his cell. Whilst she was still present, obedience called him to hear the confession of a sick person. He went, and on his return found that Mary had waited for him, and highly commended his obedience. On the other hand, she greatly blamed another religious who remained to finish some private devotions after the refectory bell had rung. Our Lord, once speaking to St. Bridget on the security which is found in obeying a spiritual director, said, Obedience brings all saints to glory. For, as St. Philip Neri used to say, God demands no account of things done by obedience, having himself said, He that heareth you heareth me, and he that despiseth you despiseth me. The mother of God herself revealed to St. Bridget that through the merit of her obedience she had obtained so great power that no sinner, however great were his crimes, who had recourse to her with a purpose of amendment, failed to obtain pardon. Our own sweet queen, then, and mother, intercede with Jesus for us, by the merit of thine obedience, obtain that we may be faithful in obeying his will and the commands of our spiritual fathers. Amen. We now continue with the glories of Mary. Part 4. The Virtues of Mary. Part 9. Mary's Patience. This world, being a place of merit, is rightly called a valley of tears, for we are all placed in it to suffer that we may, by patience, gain our own souls unto life eternal, as our Lord himself says, In your patience you shall possess your souls. God gave us the Blessed Virgin Mary as a model of all virtues, but more especially as an example of patience. St. Francis de Sales, amongst other things, remarks that it was precisely for this reason that at the marriage feast of Cana, Jesus Christ gave the Blessed Virgin an answer by which he seemed to value her prayers but little. Woman, what is that to thee and to me? 
and he did this that he might give us the example of the patience of his most holy mother. But what need have we to seek for instances of this virtue? Mary's whole life was a continual exercise of her patience, for, as the angel revealed to St. Bridget, as a rose grows up amongst thorns, so did the Blessed Virgin grow up amongst tribulations. Compassion alone for the Redeemer's sufferings sufficed to make her a martyr of patience. Hence, St. Bonaventure says that a crucified mother conceived a crucified son. In speaking of her dolors, we have already considered how much she suffered, both in her journey to Egypt and during her residence there, as also during the time she lived with her son in the house at Nazareth. What Mary endured when present at the death of Jesus on Calvary is alone sufficient to show us how constant and sublime was her patience. There stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother. Then it was that precisely by the merit of her patience, the blessed Albert the Great says, She brought us forth to the life of grace. If we then wish to be the children of Mary, we must endeavor to imitate her in her patience. For what? says St. Cyprian, can enrich us with greater merit in this life and greater glory in the next than the patient enduring of sufferings. God said by the prophet Osi, I will hedge up thy way with thorns. To this St. Gregory adds that the way of the elect is hedged with thorns. As a hedge of thorns protects a vineyard, so does God protect his servants from the danger of attaching themselves to the earth by encompassing them with tribulations. Therefore, St. Cyprian concludes that it is patience that delivers us from sin and from hell. It is also patience that makes saints. Patience hath a perfect work, bearing in peace not only the crosses which come immediately from God, such as sickness, poverty, but also those which come from men, persecutions, injuries, and the rest. St. John saw all the saints bearing palm branches, the emblem of martyrdom, in their hands. After this I saw a great multitude, and palms were in their hands, thereby denoting that all adults who are saved must be martyrs, either by shedding their blood for Christ or by patience. Rejoice, then, exclaimed St. Gregory. We can be martyrs without the executioner's sword, if we only preserve patience. Provided only, as St. Bernard says, we endure the afflictions of this life with patience and joy. Oh, what fruit will not every pain born for God's sake produce for us in heaven? Hence the Apostle encourages us, saying, That which is at present momentary and light of our tribulation worketh for us above measure exceedingly an eternal weight of glory. St. Teresa's instructions on this subject are beautiful. She used to say, Those who embrace the cross do not feel it. And elsewhere, that if we resolve to suffer, the pain ceases. When our crosses weigh heavily upon us, let us have recourse to Mary, who is called by the Church the Comfortress of the Afflicted, and by St. John Damascene the remedy for all sorrows of the heart. Ah, my most sweet lady, thou who wast innocent didst suffer with so much patience, and shall I, who deserve hell, refuse to suffer? My mother, 
I now ask thee this favor, not indeed to be delivered from crosses, but to bear them with patience. For the love of Jesus, I entreat thee to obtain at least this grace for me from God. From thee do I hope for it with confidence. Part 10 The Spirit of Prayer and Meditation in Mary there was never a soul on earth that practiced in so perfect a manner as the Blessed Virgin the great lesson taught by our Savior, that we ought always to pray and not to faint. From no one, says St. Bonaventure, can we better take example and learn how necessary is perseverance in prayer than from Mary. Mary gave an example which we must follow and not faint. For Blessed Albert the Great asserts that after Jesus Christ, the Divine Mother was the most perfect in prayer of all who have ever been or ever will be. Her prayer was continual and persevering. In the very first moment in which she had the perfect use of reason, which was, as we have said in the discourse on her nativity, in the first moment of her existence, she began to pray, that she might be able to devote herself still more to prayer when only three years of age she shut herself up in the retirement of the temple, where, amongst other hours set aside for this exercise, as she herself told St. Elizabeth of Hungary, she always rose at midnight and went before the altar of the temple to offer her supplications. For the same purpose, and that she might constantly meditate on the sufferings of Jesus, Odilio says she very frequently visited the places of our Lord's nativity passion, and sepulchre. Moreover, she prayed with the greatest recollection of spirit, free from every distraction and inordinate affection. Nor did any exterior occupation ever obscure the light of her unceasing contemplation, as we are assured by Denis the Carthusian. Through love for prayer, the Blessed Virgin was so enamored of solitude that, as she told St. Bridget, when she lived in the temple, she avoided even intercourse with her parents. On the words of the prophet Isaiah, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. St. Jerome remarks that the word virgin in Hebrew properly signifies a retired virgin, so that even the prophet foretold the affection which Mary would have for solitude. Richard of St. Lawrence says that the angel addressed her in these words, the Lord is with thee, on account of her great love for retirement. For this reason, St. Vincent Ferrer asserts that the Divine Mother only left her house to go to the temple, and then her demeanor was all composed, and she kept her eyes modestly cast down. For the same reason, when she went to visit St. Elizabeth, she went with haste. From this, St. Ambrose says, that virgins should learn to avoid the world. St. Bernard affirms that on account of Mary's love for prayer and solitude, she was always careful to avoid the society and converse of men. She was therefore called a turtle dove by the Holy Ghost. Thy cheeks are as beautiful as the turtle doves. The turtle dove, says Virgello, is a solitary bird and denotes unitive affection in the soul. Hence it was that the Blessed Virgin always lived solitary in this world as in a desert, and that of her it was said, Who is she that goeth up by the desert as a pillar of smoke? <laughs>
On these words the abbot Rupert says, Thus didst thou, indeed, loving solitude, ascend by the desert. Philo assures us that God only speaks to souls in solitude. God himself declares the same thing by the prophet Osi. I will lead her into the wilderness, and I will speak to her heart. O happy solitude, exclaims St. Jerome, in which God speaks familiarly and converses with his own. Yes, says St. Bernard, for solitude and the silence which is there enjoyed force the soul to leave the earth in thought and meditate on things of heaven. Most Holy Virgin, do thou obtain us affection for prayer and retirement, that detaching ourselves from the love of creatures, we may aspire only after God and heaven, where we hope one day to see thee, to praise thee, and to love thee, together with Jesus thy Son, for ever and ever. Amen. Come over to me, all ye that desire me, and be filled with my fruits, Mary's fruits are her virtues. Thou hast had none like thee, nor shalt thou have an equal. Thou alone of women hast above all pleased Christ. Hymns 1. The Loveliness of Mary Raise your voices, vales and mountains, flowery meadows, streams and fountains. Praise, O oh praise, the loveliest maiden, ever the Creator made. Murmuring brooks, your tribute bringing, little birds with joyful singing, come with mirthful praises laden, to your queen be homage paid. Say, hey, sweet we virgin, we implore thee, say what beauty God sheds o'er thee. Praise and thanks to him be given, who in love created thee. Like a sun with splendor glowing, gleams thy heart with love o'erflowing. Like the moon in starry heaven shines thy peerless purity. Like the rose and lily blooming, sweetly heaven and earth perfuming, stainless, spotless thou appearest, queenly beauty graces thee. But to God in whom thou livest, sweeter joy in praise thou givest, when to him in beauty nearest, yet so humble thou canst be. Lovely Love. maid to God most pleasing, and for us his wrath appeasing. O, oh, by all thy love for Jesus, show to us thy clemency. 2. Mary, Virgin of Virgins Of all virgins thou art fairest, dearest Mary, heavenly queen. Of all creatures thou art purest, like to thee was never seen. Thy sweet face is like the heavens, full of grace and purity. Beauty so divine adorns it, God alone surpasses thee. Thy bright eyes with love are beaming, like twin stars of heaven they shine, and thy looks are flaming arrows, wounding hearts with love divine. Thy chaste hands, whose sight enamors, are like pearls of luster rare, ever full of heavenly treasures, for all those who ask a share. Queen art thou, whom all things worship, earth and hell and heaven above, but thy heart o'erflows with goodness, just and sinners feel thy love. When, ah, when, at length in heaven, may I hope thy face to see, when, ah, when, my heart keeps sighing, haste, I faint, I pine for thee. 
Souls unnumbered thou dost ever rescue from the evil one. Dearest lady, grant me also not to lose thy blessed son. Him who gave us such a mother, let our grateful songs proclaim. Loving hearts and joyful voices, praise her great Creator's name. Glory to the name of Mary, raise your voices, louder raise, and of Jesus, Son of Mary, every creature chant the praise. Part the Fifth Practices of Devotion in Honor of the Divine Mother The Queen of Heaven is so gracious and liberal, says St. Andrew of Crete, that she recompenses her servants with the greatest munificence for the most trifling devotions. Two conditions, however, are there. One is that when we offer her our devotions, our souls should be free from sin. Otherwise, she would address us, as she addressed a wicked soldier spoken of by St. Peter Celestine. This soldier every day performed the same devotion in honor of our Blessed Lady. One day he was suffering greatly from hunger, when Mary appeared to him and offered him some most delicious meats but in so filthy a vessel that he could not bring himself to taste them. I am the mother of God, the blessed virgin then said, and am come to satisfy thy hunger. But, O lady, he answered, I cannot eat out of so dirty a vessel. And how, replied Mary, canst thou expect that I should accept thy devotions offered to me with so defiled a soul as thine? On hearing this, the soldier was converted, became a hermit, and lived in a desert for thirty years. At death the Blessed Virgin again appeared to him, and took him herself to heaven. In the first part of this work we said that it was morally impossible for a client of Mary to be lost. But this must be understood on condition that he lives either without sin, or at least with the desire to abandon it, for then the Blessed Virgin will help him. But should any one, on the other hand, sin in the hope that Mary will save him, he thereby would render himself unworthy and incapable of her protection. The second condition is perseverance in devotion to Mary. Perseverance alone, says St. Bernard, will merit a crown. When Thomas Akempis was young man, he used to every day to have recourse to the Blessed Virgin with certain prayers. He one day omitted them. He then omitted them for some weeks, and finally gave them up altogether. One night he saw Mary in a dream. She embraced all his companions, but when his turn came she said, What dost thou expect, thou who hast given up thy devotions? Depart, thou art unworthy of my caresses. On hearing this, Thomas awoke in alarm and resumed his ordinary prayers. Hence Richard of St. Lawrence with reason says that he who perseveres in his devotion to Mary will be blessed in his confidence and will obtain all he desires. But as no one can be certain of this perseverance, no one before death can be certain of salvation. The advice given by the Venerable John Berkmans of the Society of Jesus deserves our particular attention. When this holy young man was dying, his companions entreated him, before he left the world, to tell him what the devotion they should perform which would be most agreeable to our Blessed Lady. He replied in the following remarkable words, 
any devotion, however small, provided it is constant. I therefore now give with simplicity and in a few words the various devotions which we can offer our mother in order to obtain her favor, and this I consider the most useful part of my work, but I do not so much rec recommend my dear reader to practice them all as to choose those which please him most, and to persevere in them, for fear that if he omits them he may lose the protection of the Divine Mother. Oh, how many are there now in hell who would have been saved had they only persevered in the devotions which they once practiced in honor of Mary. 1. The Hail Mary This angelical salutation is most pleasing to the ever-blessed Virgin, for whenever she hears it, it would seem as if the joy which she experienced when St. Gabriel announced to her that she was the chosen mother of God was renewed in her, and with this object in view, we should often salute her with the Hail Mary. Salute her, says Thomas Akempis, with the angelical salutation, for she indeed hears this sound with pleasure. The Divine Mother herself told St. Matilda that no one could salute her in a manner more agreeable to herself than with the Hail Mary. He who salutes Mary will also be saluted by her. St. Bernard once heard a statue of the Blessed Virgin salute him, saying, Hail Bernard! Mary's salutation, says St. Bonaventure, will always be some grace corresponding to the wants of him who salutes her. She willingly salutes us with grace, if we willingly salute her with a Hail Mary. Richard of St. Lawrence adds that if we address the Mother of our Lord, saying, Hail Mary! She cannot refuse the grace which we ask. Mary herself promised St. Gertrude as many graces at death as she would have said Hail Mary's. Blessed Alan asserts that as all heaven rejoices when the Hail Mary is said, so also do the devils tremble and take flight. This Thomas Akempis affirms in his own experience, for he says that once the devil appeared to him and instantly fled on hearing the Hail Mary. To practice this devotion, 1. We can every morning and every evening on rising and going to bed say three Hail Marys, prostrate, or at least kneeling, and add to each Hail Mary this short prayer. O Mary, by thy pure and immaculate conception, make my body pure and my soul holy. We should then, as St. Stanislaus always did, ask Mary's blessing as our mother place ourselves under the mantle of her protection, beseeching her to guard us during the coming day or night from sin. For this purpose, it is advisable to have a beautiful picture or image of the Blessed Virgin. 2. We can say the Angelus with the usual three Hail Marys in the morning, at midday, and in the evening. Pope John twenty second was the first to grant an indulgence for this devotion. It was on the following occasion as Father Crasset relates. A criminal was condemned to be burned alive on the vigil of the Annunciation of the Mother of God. He saluted her with a Hail Mary, and in the midst of the flames he, and even his clothes, remained uninjured. In 1724, Benedict the Thirteenth granted a hundred days' indulgence to all who recite it, and a plenary indulgence once a month 
to those who during that time have recited it daily as above, on condition of going to confession and receiving the Holy Communion, and praying for the usual intentions. At the end of each Hail Mary may be added, Thanks be to God and to Mary. Formerly, at the sound of the bell, all knelt down to say the Angelus, but in the present day there are some who are ashamed to do so. St. Charles Borromeo was not ashamed to leave his carriage or get off his horse to say the Angelus in the street, and even sometimes in the mud. It is related that there was a slothful religious who neglected to kneel at the sound of the Angelus bell. He saw the belfry bow down three times, and a voice said, Behold, wilt thou not do what even inanimate creatures do? Here we must remark that Benedict the Fourteenth directed that in Paschal time, instead of saying the Angelus, we should say the Regina Celi, and that on Saturday evenings and the whole of Sunday the Angelus should be said standing. 3. We can salute the Mother of God with a Hail Mary every time we hear the clock strike. Blessed Alphonsus Rodriguez saluted her every hour, and at night angels awoke him that he might not omit this devotion. 4. In going out and returning to the house, we can salute the Blessed Virgin with a Hail Mary, that both at home and abroad she may guard us from all sin, and we should each time kiss her feet, as the Carthusian fathers always do. 5. We should reverence every image of Mary which we pass with a Hail Mary. For this purpose, those who can do so would do well to place a beautiful image of the Blessed Virgin on the wall of their houses, that it may be venerated by those who pass. In Naples, and still more in Rome, there are most beautiful images of our Blessed Lady placed by the wayside by her devout clients. 6. By command of the Holy Church, all the canonical hours are preceded by a Hail Mary, and concluded with it. We therefore do well to begin and end all our actions with the Hail Mary. I say all our actions, whether spiritual, such as prayer, confession, and communion, spiritual reading, hearing sermons, and the like, or temporal, like study, giving advice, working, going to table, to bed, etc. Happy are those actions that are enclosed between two Hail Marys. So also should we do on waking in the morning, on closing our eyes to sleep, in every temptation, in every danger, in every inclination to anger, and the like. On these occasions we should always say a Hail Mary. My dear reader, do this, and you will see the immense advantage that you will derive from it. Father Oeramia relates that the Blessed Virgin promised St. Matilda a happy death if she every day recited three Hail Marys in honor of her power, wisdom, and goodness. Moreover, she herself told St. Jane Francis de Chantal that the Hail Mary was most acceptable to her, and especially when recited ten times in honor of her ten virtues. 2. Novenas Devout clients of Mary are all attention and fervor in celebrating the novenas or nine days preceding her festivals, and the Blessed Virgin is all love in dispensing innumerable 
and most special graces to them. St. Gertrude one day saw under Mary's mantle a band of souls whom the great lady was considering with the most tender affection, and she was given to understand that they were persons who, during the preceding days, had prepared themselves with various devotions for the Feast of the Assumption. The following devotions are some of those which may be used during the novenas. 1. We may make mental prayer in the morning and evening and a visit to the Blessed Sacrament, adding nine times the Our Father, Hail Mary, and Glory Be to the Father. 2. We may pay Mary three visits, visiting her statue or picture, and thank our Lord for the graces that He granted her, and each time ask the Blessed Virgin for some special grace. In one of these visits, the prayer, which will be found after the discourse on the feast, whichever it may be, can be said. 3. We may make many acts of love towards Mary, at least fifty or a hundred, and also towards Jesus, for we can do nothing that pleases her more than to love her son, as she said to St. Bridget, If thou wishest to bind thyself to me, love my son. 4. We may read every day of the Novena, for a quarter of an hour, some book that treats of her glories. 5. We may perform some external mortification, such as wearing a haircloth, taking a discipline, or the like. We can also fast, or at table abstain from fruit, or some favorite dish, at least a part of it, or choose some bitter herbs. On the vigil of the feast we may fast on bread and water but none of these things should be done without the permission of our confessor. Interior mortifications, however, are the best of all to practice during these novenas, such as to avoid looking at or listening to things out of curiosity, to remain in retirement, observe silence, be obedient, not give impatient answers, bear contradictions, and such things, which can all be practiced with less danger of vanity with greater merit, and which do not need the confessor's permission. The most useful exercise is to propose, from the beginning of the novena, to correct some fault into which we fall the most frequently. For this purpose, it will be well, in the visits spoken of above, to ask pardon for past faults, to renew our resolutions not to commit them any more, and to implore Mary's help. The devotion most dear and pleasing to Mary is, to endeavor to imitate her virtues. Therefore, it would be well always to propose to ourselves the imitation of some virtue that corresponds to the festival, as, for example, on the feast of her Immaculate Conception, purity of intention, on her nativity, renewal of the spirit, to throw off tepidity, on her presentation, detachment from something to which we are most attached, on her Annunciation, humility in supporting contempt, on her visitation, charity towards our neighbor, in giving alms, or at least in praying for sinners, on her purification, obedience to superiors, and in fine, on the feast of her assumption, let us endeavor to detach ourselves from the world, do all to prepare ourselves for death, and regulate each day of our lives as if it will be our last. 6. Besides going to communion on the day of the feast, it would be well to ask leave from our confessor to go more frequently during the novena. Father Signeri used to say that we cannot honor Mary better than with Jesus, 
she herself mm -hmm. revealed to a holy soul, as Father Crasset relates, that we can offer her nothing that is more pleasing to her than the Holy Communion, for in that holy sacrament it is that Jesus gathers the fruit of his passion in our soul. Hence it appears that the Blessed Virgin desires nothing so much of her clients as communion, saying, Come, eat my bread, and drink the wine which I have mingled for you. We will continue on the next tape.